The intermediate line advises a language and concept warning for the entire show. Hey, K underscore Diz13 here, and you're listening to the intermediate line. And I think it's time to bring back the wide world of sports because people should know about the small brim I caught off the pylons. This episode of the intermediate line is brought to you by Manic Tackle Project, the only company who knows fly fishing as well as you do. And Beast Brushes, Australian-made brushes and dubbing, professionally graded natural materials, plus a full shop for all of your fly tying needs at beastbrushes.com. Okay, welcome back to the Intermediate Line, listeners. Um, it's your host, Volsey. I'm by myself tonight. And, um, well, I don't have the usual idiot with me, Chris. Uh, he's, he's uh, well, we'll talk about it a bit later, but I'm joined by, uh, by a previous two-time guest, Bill Mitchell. Welcome to the show, Bill. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Great to be back. Yeah, mate. Yeah, it's... Um, Bill is uh, well well known to our listeners. Second time, as I mentioned, um, and uh, and Bill is um, I don't know. I, I I know you'd be embarrassed to hear this, but he's he's somewhat of a personality, and uh, he's he's one of my MVPs. So uh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For people who aren't up to date on Bill, he lives in Townsville. Um, he's broadly experienced across uh, tropical fly fishing, and also he's he's done a bit of dabbling in in trout down south and carp down uh, southeast Queensland. And um, he's yeah, he's well spread. Um, and yeah, tonight we're just having a chat about fly lines and uh, a bit of other things. Yeah, so um, I'm really looking forward to to talking to Bill about some of these topics. Um, so, Bill, what have you been up to lately, mate? Look, I've just come back this week from up at Hinchinbrook where the AFO Hinchinbrook Fly Fishing Challenge ran for two days of competition and one day of pre-fishing before that. So that was yeah. literally the weekend just gone. So, yeah, I've just come back from the Hinchinbrook Challenge. Yeah, right. It, it truly is a challenge, that competition, isn't it? Oh, look, it is. And, I mean, I think if you understand what's got to happen, you've got to catch up to seven named species yep. uh, on both days 
and you can catch as many of five of each species. But really the trick to the competition or the challenge is yeah. catching as many species as possible. And the species are incredibly diverse. So, yeah, yeah nailing all seven down is a, is a very rare feat. So it's great fun. It is, it's, it's a challenge by name and it's a challenge by nature. I've got a, a question for you. Like I've, I fished that comp four times, I think, and um, yep. I've never, I think once and I've, I got into the top ten, but I've, um, I might even be being too too generous to myself there. But anyway, and I've donated at least at least once, I think, and you know, like it's an incredible bit of water, and all every bit looks fishy. But I digress. You know what? When I see the guys who do really well, it's the same names each year. Um, and like I know these guys fish a lot. Um, I always wonder how they how they do it. Like, uh, are they have they got their fishing systems down? Like, they're actively targeting a particular species to make it happen, or do they fish for them like bycatch? Like, how do you do well, that? Well, let's just set the scene here. You've got seven species, which is barramundi, mangrove jack, cod, yeah, fl flathead, queenfish, yep. trevally, and tarpon. Now. To be able to catch those species, you've got to have, A, pretty good fishing skills through yeah. the entire water column. You've got to understand a range of different flies and how to, how to fish them with different techniques. And you've got to bloody understand the tides and the system well. So you can't just chuck together a win um, by being a good fly fisherman. You've got to be a good uh, reader of, of fishy country. You've got to understand that location. You've got to bring a whole range of skills to bear. Uh, and look, the guys who do it every year in the top five, uh, in the top couple of teams, you know, most of their names are on the trophy a few times for good reason. They're very fishy. Uh, Dan Collins won it again this year. Fantastic fisherman from from up that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you also had, you know, the old favourites like John Snell from Cairns. Who you oh, definitely. Machine, he, came, he came in as well, but you also had some new guys uh, who've been working their way up the ladder who've come from a conventional fishing background up there and have changed to fly. And yep. they're really showing that you can, once you pick up a fly rod, you can really use those conventional skills to uh, sort fish out. So there's a real mix of, of old hands, um, local hands and new hands. So, yeah, yeah. Look, this, this year was a great, great bunch of fun. We had better weather than, weather than last year. It blew its bum off last year, but we had relatively yeah. benign wind uh, and we had cooler temps so the barrow didn't bite as well as we'd like, but, yeah, great fun. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, just to, to bring that point about good all-round fishermen, like um, so I'm looking at some of their names, like John Snell, um, once Legend. again, we've had him on the past. Like John is... John is a really accomplished fisherman, you know, uh, full stop, uh, not only on fly. Like, he, he's, um, like you go around to his house, there's a million trophies, for, you know, lure yep. competitions that he's won. He was a, he was a junior, um, I think it was answer, like he was a champion at sort of bait fishing. I hope he doesn't mind people telling people that. But, you know, he, you know it's in his um, competitive fishing is, is in his DNA. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he, he loves it and he's very good at it. Um, you know, well, he's, he's also ably matched by by Kim Strathern from down your way, yeah. Uh, and you know, together as a team. And this is the other important thing about the, the challenge is it's actually a team challenge. And so you're only as good. Yeah, sure, you can you can reach for champion angler, and of course that's the pinnacle. Yep. Your champion team is just as I think just as uh, heavily aspired to. And so uh, yeah. champion team involves obviously a lot of teamwork because you know both of you've got to get pretty good scores. So. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, so it's it's a it's a variable challenge. It's got something in it for everyone. Yeah. Of course, if your team is not good, that's going to bring down both anglers. So yeah, teamwork is probably critical to both champion angler and champion mm. team. It's also critical to having a bloody good time because if you don't get on and you don't have fun, uh, then what's the point in going? So you know, Coop and I that fish together most years, uh, we fish with Dave Bradley this year. You know, yeah, we have a good time, and there's a few laughs. There's a few, you know, more serious moments if you lose a fish or something. But yeah. it's a great time. So teamwork, teamwork, and having fun is a big part of it. It's a very social comp. Okay, so just one of the things you touched on there, teamwork and having fun. I actually think, you know, well, a lot of the times I've been part of a team, you know, a fishing team that's been successful, or, or even a sporting team that's been successful. <clears throat> having fun and, and success almost goes hand in hand sometimes um yeah it's got it i think yeah yeah there's almost like a positivity uh you know a good vibe i, I hate to use the um you know a, a line from the castle in there but um yeah it's, it's amazing how often those sort of uh that, that chemistry you know works in your favor when things are happening right look you've got to be more like dennis denudo in the courtroom than, Den <laughs> than, than dennis denudo at the photocopier <laughs> Um, now, as a lawyer, I've had my share of Danuno moments with photocopies and printers, let me tell you. Uh, but, yeah, look, you've got to have a positive vibe. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's it, – you can – you know, look, the first thing I should I should have said earlier on, actually, we should congratulate the sponsors of this challenge because yeah, they true. are fantastic and they've they've uh, supported it. Uh, Australian Fly Fishing Outfitters is, is the, the naming name right sponsor, but, of course, there are many yep. others, including Manic, who sponsor this show, Yep. Uh, things like Tonic, um, Albany Island Fishing put up a, a prize, I think, six days to Albany Island this year for champion team. It's incredibly um, generous. Oh, yes, yeah. some incredible prize. There's a brand-new yeah. Scott Sector fly rod. So, wow. But in the end, those prizes probably don't mean as much as knowing that you're among, uh, I think, for the champion anglers and those guys in that top five, I think knowing you're among... The people who can fish as well as anybody else and certainly i put a challenge out there to anyone in the in the country at least when covid settles down and we can get to places yeah to come up and fish the challenge there's a maximum of 25 teams um so 50-ish anglers uh and that if you look at that leaderboard there's very fine fly fishermen there and there's a lot of kind of big egos out there i guess who would be very humbled by the challenge because uh, yeah. of course everything in Hinchinbrook looks fish Hinch, everything in Hinchinbrook looks fishy uh, but unfortunately, everything in Hinchinbrook isn't fishy, so there's often a lot of water between fish. Uh, yeah. and, and, you know, one day, for example, uh, we didn't find any tarpon for two days. Other people found tarpon. So, you know, putting together all those pieces of the challenge puzzle, seven species both days, uh, that's a cracking effort. And so, um, you know, I got, I think I got four species uh, on the second day, which is my best effort. I mean, yeah. I'm very happy with that because four species is decent. But, you know, within a moment, you could have got that fifth species or, you know, the last year I was on, I should have picked up, I think it was four, and I dropped a GT. You know, when you want to yeah. find a GT at the challenge, you'll never see one. <laughs> when you don't want to find a GT, they're going to eat and fly every time. So uh, there's, a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of inherent paradoxes that seem to raise themselves during the challenge as well. Isn't that true? Like, it, it's a, it feels like sometimes you can go to a, a boat ramp in North Queensland and, you know, just, just have your stretch your line cast, you know, your first cast, you flip the fly line, you know, fly over the side, strip off some lines and, and then, you know, retrieve it. And suddenly there's a GT there, you know, like, it, oh, but as yeah. soon as, as soon as you try to do it, you can't, you can't produce oh. one. 
You've yeah. been to my, you've been to my, you know, no action required flathead spot where all you have to yeah. do is accidentally drop your fly in the water and you'll probably catch a. Well, try catching a flathead at Hinchelbrook during the challenge. <laughs> I tell you, what, that's a chat. That's a real challenge. So, yeah, <laughs> look, great social, great social um, yeah. event. People get together at the Lucinda Point Hotel for uh, the for the pre fish night. We have a meal together. People yeah. have a couple of beers. We watch the scores come in or get the scores put up and. And yeah. there's, there's a lovely rivalry that happens and people want to talk about what the, the day they've had, but yeah. they don't want to talk too much about where they went and there's some prevarication and friendly evasion. and um, yeah, It's like a, a game of poker, isn't it? Like it's, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of, a lot of uh, drama. Oh, I'm going to say drama in a good way. Like there's, oh, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's always something happening. There's all, always little angles. Um, you know, the, the challenge doesn't necessarily stop, you know, once the boat's on a trailer, does it? No, there's just a few alpha males in that one room. There's a few women at, at times as well. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, pe people are, you know, it's, you know, I think if you score well in that comp, you can be proud of yourself. You've done bloody well. So, yeah. you know, a bit comes with it. And so the, the up-and-comers who are challenging the old dogs, uh, yeah, there's some fun there. We all like watch watching that. We like watching people. There were two young fellas, and sorry, boys, if you're listening, I can't remember your names, but two young fellas, uh, probably 17, fished this year. Really? They didn't. They didn't have the best comp because it's pretty tough to do it your first time round. But I think absolutely everyone in that room had a big smile on their face because it was so encouraging to see a pair of seventeen-year-old boys, who, young men, I should say, who yeah. were there starting out their journey in this sport. And that is so cool. Yeah, it was that, very cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. that is that is really cool. You know, um, I think that's something I can identify with. I started when I was about nineteen. Um, yeah. But um, and getting getting right into it from the start is good. I mean, you know, if they fish fifteen challenges in a row, they'll still be young at thirty two, and yeah. they'll be really really difficult to beat. You know, um, oh, yeah. so you know that's that's fantastic. Um, just want to circle back on something we touched sure. on earlier. Do um, do is there is is target? Do you target each species or is bycatch? Um, Oh, oh, look, it's a tricky one. You, tr you try and target every species. You try and target every species, but, of course, sometimes you'll get to yeah. a snag or somewhere and it's a bit of a lucky dip. This year we had one snag where we pulled, I think it was seven or eight species off a snag, Yeah. Um, which is the sort of fishery that Hinchinbrook is. Some days you never know what you're going to catch. Yeah. Uh, we got a finger mark. We got uh, GT, queenfish, barracuda. Um, oh, boy, I can't think what the other ones were. All sorts of bits and pieces. I think we counted seven or eight species of one snag. Yep. We also had a day, frustratingly, where we were trying to catch a GT and we caught, I reckon, this is no lie, <laughs> uh, Coop and I and Dave caught probably, let's say, 30 to 40 undersized GTs. Oh, no. From tiny little fellas up yeah. to those. That, every fish has got to be at least 30 centimetres in the comp. Mm -hmm. So you've got to put it on a ruler, take a photograph of that fish with your token there, and it's got to be at least 30 centimetres. It's all catch and release, so everything goes back. Yeah, um, and so we caught I don't know how many GTs that were 27, 28, where you catch a cod, you need a cod and you catch one that's sort of <laughs> 27 and a half. Hey, look, we all do the right thing. We know that it's an honesty system. Uh, well, you've got to take a photograph of the thing anyway, but, uh, yeah. yeah, like you know, like it's frustrating some days. But um, And then every now and again, we on the last day, we are trying to catch a GT for Coop. And, yep. Well, we're at a spot where, you, you know, maybe you'll get a GT off a point. 
Well, what turns up? But probably a 50-pound GT wow. comes, comes barreling across the flat like a crazy animal with yeah. with bait fish showering all over the place, like literally sprays of bait fish going everywhere. And this thing chomping along behind them like a, wow. I don't know, like a savage beast. Yeah. We could just see the outline of its head and it was a genuine bus of a fish. Um, <laughs> and I think they said, oh, that might be a bit bigger than we're looking for. Um, but, um, you know, and we like, you know, it's chasing, it's chasing the school of a hundred six inch fish and you stand standing there with a, you know, number two clouds or something in your hand. We we're never going to catch that fish, but, um, we just stopped and watched the miracle of nature at work. And there's just this, yeah, you know, top of the line apex predator doing its work. Um, but so you, just, you, you never know what's going to turn up there. We saw some big queens. We saw a massive barra. Uh, we'd been, I'll tell you this story quickly because it's a good story. We, we had been seeing a lot of black pikey brim on every snag. It seemed like brim were everywhere. You could have run a brim. You could have run a brim comp successfully if you, <laughs> if you could catch them. Um, <laughs> although, Little. although we both did. Yes, Dave. Shout out to Dave Little. Cook and I both caught a pikey on fly, uh, which was Not quite nice. gratifying. But yeah. anyway, what what we thought was a large school of pikeys that had moved to a snag because we could see their black kind of oblong shape. Um, after a few casts on that snag, the pikeys moved. Except the per pikeys weren't pikeys. The pikeys were an 80 to 90 centimetre barramundi that just slid out of the snag. Um, yeah. And we just sort of watched in horror as this, you know, a, a serious trophy barra, serious saltwater trophy barra on a skinny, skinny mud bank just sort of spooked off. And Wow. So it's a fishery where anything can happen um, and anything probably will happen. And, of course, we, none of us got on the flats. A few people, there were stories of drop goldies because, uh, of course, there's trophy goldies and there's, a, of course, yep. the Holy Grail permit there as well. Did uh, anyone target them? I don't think anyone targeted permit. I think the weather would have been tough. I think a few people had a bit of a mosey at the flats, probably the inside flats a couple of times, but I don't expect they – I mean, there was, there's always stories about people who see permit. Um, in my experience, they tend to come from people who probably haven't seen permit before, so they're a little unreliable. But um, yeah. that's not to say that they weren't there because they're there. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, it's an incredible, uh, incredible um, environment. We saw a, a couple of uh, crocs from, you know, little real little guy through to a giant sort of I don't know, maybe a four meter, well, wow. four meter one sliding off the bank, dugong. Uh, Look, yeah. it's worth getting up there to fish and to fish with AFO or one of the other guides that fishes up there, but AFO, of course, because they're the sponsor of the comp, yeah. um, just to see that environment because it is a world heritage, um, you know, it's national, international world heritage uh, listed national park. It, it's a magnificent place to be. Yeah. And when, you, when you're looking over, as you know, when you're looking at the island, it, it just looks like a stegosaur should come <laughs> crashing through the undergrowth. It's just prehistoric and primal. So that. It's funny you should mention that because when I, you know, that bit where you say come around the corner of maybe around Herbert Seymour yeah. to heading towards, um, hey, is it Haycock Island? Haycock, Haycock, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you come around the corner there and it sort of feels like you're on the set of Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah, that music plays in your head, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> it is just magic and it, it it's so impressive, um, you know, and I always, I love fishing tropical north queensland for you know for, for that reason between there and cairns you always have the mountains so close to the the ocean yeah. but i think the jewel in the crown is probably that hinchinbrook channel from a from a nice place to fish point of view but I, I, you may have mentioned earlier that you know almost all of that place looks fishy like it should be covered in fish yeah. um and um it's and no doubt at some points it is but it's so easy to get 
town and um i, I just find when i'm there i i get almost i would say analysis paralysis but there's just too much good stuff you know um, so much happening yeah yeah, yeah there's so much up and but that's not even taking into account that you can zip off to the islands and you know there's yeah. all that stuff but yeah look there's almost no better feeling than coming flying out of a creek sitting in the sitting in a skiff you know yeah. kind of you know moving pretty quickly across that glassy water and then you enter the channel and you and opportunity just seems to open up and uh you know yourself when you fish places like that a lot of i mean of course a lot of it depends on your guide but you yeah. still got to make the cast you still yeah. got to hook the fish and you still got to get it in the boat so uh it's a big opportunity and of course the teamwork associated with fishing with a guide is always fun there because it is yeah. a challenging fishery and i think a lot of people go there expecting they'll kind of kill the pig um and then they realize they've got to actually rely on some decent technical skills because yeah you know barramundi aren't always easy to catch and, and permits certainly aren't easy to catch and and hell, the goldies there probably aren't easy to catch. So, you know, I think for a persistent fly fisherman and someone who's willing to practice and stuff, it's a great opportunity. And the challenge is one of the best ways to learn about these sort of places. So you yeah. can get up there, get out there and have a go. No one really cares if you don't score much. I mean, it's not that sort of comp where... It's no embarrassment. Know, not yeah. whatsoever. We've all had donut days and we've all had days where we thought, no, we'd do so much better. You yeah. know, sure, in the lead up to the comp, we all imagine we'll fish so much better. And, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way Coop and I fish. We fished pretty hard. Um, yeah. We made, we made Dave catch some queenies and some jeeps and stuff as well. So, you know, we, we, want, a, we want a good blend of fun and, um, and competition, really. And but it, probably the, the emphasis is probably more on fun for us, I suspect. So. Yeah. Yeah. And look, you know what is, it's stunning is I, that, that particular challenge has, has a really good lineup of fly boats too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there aren't too many other fly fishing comps or saltwater fly fishing comps that you could compare it with, you know, because there just aren't that many around. But, you know, the average standard of boat gives an indication of the level mm. of um, expertise and specialty and how serious these guys take their, their fishing. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a couple of new, I mean, there's, you know, a bunch of Hughes and mm. Mavericks and various other, um, you know, Florida-style skiffs or flats boats. Yeah. yeah, there's people polling and, and yeah, it's – there's some very good fishermen, some very good casters in that group as well. Uh, yeah. And not, and not just the guys that have been doing it for a long time. And there's a range of really different techniques. You know, I've watched various people and, and uh, without giving too much away, you know, if you looked at how John Snell caught his barra, it's probably pretty different to how um, one of the other blokes caught his barra. You know, everyone's honed, yeah. a, honed a technique. And you know what I'm talking about, no one's telling but – Yes. Everyone's honed a technique there that works, and it, it doesn't really matter what that technique is, but you've got to be able to adjust it and, and do stuff. So, um, work on a day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We actually tried to pull off something unique this time because Coop saw some lionfish in a snag, and we tried to uh, <laughs> dab some or dab some uh, lionfish, but that didn't work. Um, <laughs> we saw some fugus too, but we left them alone because they probably bite the fly line in half and uh, toadies. Uh, They're my nemesis, mate. Yeah, caught our share of, of, you know, the, the, well, the lucky dip fish like barracuda and, you know, things like that. Well, if it's 30 centimetres, it scores. I don't care what it is. It doesn't give you the species points, but, hey, if it's a, you know, whatever. I I caught a 45 centimetre grey mackerel off a snag this time. I think it was a little grey. It could have been a doggy, but, you know, you're catching, you know, off a lucky dip snag, you're catching a queenie or or something, and all of a sudden you think, what's that? That's weird, and it turns out to be a mackerel. So, as I said, anything's possible. It's all good fun, though. 
Do you remember that comp? Um, I think it was Neil. Yeah, it was definitely Neil Cunnington. He he saw a, a, a sort of like just a boil, a miscellaneous boil. You know, maybe yeah. sixty feet off the off the bow, and it wasn't particularly big. But he flipped his. He had a one o clouser on a eight or a nine weight, and just flipped yeah. his eight. Flipped, I think. Yeah, eight weight. Yeah, uh, eight weight one stage one, and he um, just flipped his his fly over there and come up tight on this thing, and um, you know that that it turned out to be a forty fifty pound GT. Yeah, yeah, we were looking at the photos of that again this time. Incredible catch. Yeah, yeah most meritorious. I can't think what got most meritorious this year. I, I, some reason just can't remember that it's generally either an incredible fish or an incredible story or someone who's you know up and coming like a youngster who's achieved something um, i just don't remember what it was this year but yeah there's some been some incredible fish caught um i don't i just can't think of what i mean the amount of fish caught was incredible uh dan collins who came in obviously champion angler yeah caught caught four meters of cod in two days a lot yeah, of he's only allowed to have 10 over two days because he's got to <laughs> upgrade. I think he caught nine on the first day and possibly nine or ten on the second day. I mean, for the person who's struggling to catch a cod for the score, he mm. got 20. He got 20. Um, and, you know, so, uh, yeah, I think I wound up with 3.7 metres of queenfish, which is kind of a, a repulsive kind of sounding statistic. But that's <laughs> kind of what you end up with at the, <laughs> end, up with at the end, you know, like... Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, I don't think there are any big queenies caught this year. Normally, someone cracks a big queenie, but yeah, um, yeah. But all the species were caught this year, so uh, I don't think anything was left behind. So yeah, just think about that for a moment. Having to catch, just think about how you fish a tide and how you fish a location. You've got to catch barra, cod, jack, trevally, queenfish, tarpon, flathead. No, it's a, it's fairly hard. Um, but yeah, that's the challenge. That's why they call it the challenge. Uh, it's not meant to be easy. I've got a question for you that I've been dying to ask. I mean, you, I know you've got a penchant for um, uh, flies that you can call each way bets. Um, yeah. <laughs> does that does that enter the calculations when you you're choosing a fly up there? Is it a, is it a you know do you tie on a fly thinking this could get a queen, this could get a god, this could get a flathead? You know, like, or are you specifically going this is my gun? You know, queenie fly, tarpon fly, etc., like that. I fished an for the for the kind of estuary uh, and snags. I fished a well, generally for the shallower water. I'll say, I fished an eight weight with a clear tip floater, and I fished a black and purple or blurple um, Bradley's bunny. Yeah, um, and I did not change that fly in three days. I caught three barra uh, and a bunch of other things on that fly. Yeah. Right. Um, four into the second outfit I had was a nine weight intermediate, full intermediate. Mm -hmm. uh, and I generally fished a clouser on that, um, and we fished a combination. I fished pink and white for a day, and I then I think I wound up using uh, maybe grey and white, and uh, Coop I think used all white. So you generally want something you can plumb the depths with a little bit. Um, so generally a full intermediate line and a clouser. You want something you can fish sort of up a bit higher with. But there were yeah. a lot of people on the comp who probably fished with one fly, like a clouser or something as well. Um, mm. Weed guarded because you're fishing in the sticks pretty heavily. Um, they also take, oh, just I like that loop on the front that you can cut in half and turn into a double sprig. Yeah. So you just tie in basically a loop and just underneath the, the eye of the hook. Yep. Um, and uh, most most fly ties are using that now. Sure. Um, 
I also take a full sinker with me, so, a, you know, a, a proper sinking line, uh, although I never have much luck catching fish on that, but I hate fishing with full sinking lines, so it may well just be a, an artefact of my own, uh, dis, you know, um, dislike of full sinking lines, but there's a, a time and a place for them. You know, when you're fishing a hole that's eight metres deep, you probably need a full sinker. Yep. The only other thing I'd probably take, and we took this year, was we took a couple of shorter rods to try and punch some lines into the mangroves a bit deeper um, than we can get. Um, and certainly um, both Coop and I fish with shorter rods for bits and pieces of it. He fished with a, a Reddington Predator, <clears throat> and I fished with an old Scott um, 7.79 line. Yep. But look, I mean, I, you know, I think your, your standard outfits are probably having a full intermediate and a, a floater of whichever kind you use. Yeah. That's probably that's you can get away with two rods, no troubles at all. There's some rules you've got to follow IGFA or, or Australian Game Fishing Association class rules. So yep. you must fish uh, at least one foot. I think it's one foot. I better get that right. Maybe I'm wrong, but you've got a, a certain amount of class tippet you've got to fish. Yep. The comp requires you fishing no more than twenty pound class. Yeah. You're allowed to have a shock tippet of no more than thirty centimeters. Yeah. I uh, don't think there's any limit on what you what you tie to that, but. So generally, you're fishing a, a you know a, a whole leader that's about nine foot, which includes um, the shock, uh, and you know we generally fish something like I don't know forty or something for the shock because the barrows will, you know, even a little barrel put some scars on forty. Um, yeah. So I think on my Clouser rod, I started with thirty centimeters of shock. I went through almost a whole shock tippet, and by the second day, my second shock tippet was down to a nub of about I don't know. 10 centimetres. So you, you, you're retying on a bit. You, you're losing a few flies and, um, you know, you're fishing with lots of little fish with raspy mouths and stuff. So, yeah, I think probably, you know, setting up for it takes a bit of thought and discipline. But, yeah, you'd get away with fishing a couple of flies. Uh, certainly the guys um, who win the comp, uh, I, you know, they don't talk too much about their flies. They're a little bit cagey. Mm -hmm. uh, but the flies they talk about are the same ones we all use, like clouses uh, mm -hmm. and bunnies and, and um, maybe some smaller flies for things like tarpons, maybe some sort of almost gotcha-style flies. Uh, yep. uh, yeah, so pretty mixed bag. You certainly wouldn't want to try and catch them on poppers or something. Although you could try, but, uh, you know, you, you want to go back to old reliables and that sort of thing. So yeah. it's probably not a time for experimentation, although we did... Uh, try some flies that Beachy had made, which were kind of like a fat boy bunny, I guess you'd say, um, to try and skip, which would skip underneath the mangrove roots. And, and, and they work well. And when we go back, Keith and I'll probably fish those flies a bit just because they, they, they're they full of promise and they swim really well. So, um, yeah. yeah, So, but it's probably not a time for experimentation and certainly we didn't do too much. In a comp, yeah, it's sort of like no. test cricket, you know. You can, yeah, yeah, yeah you want to make sure you're, you're sticking with proven uh, strokes and techniques, well, yeah. Well, I think, like like I mentioned last time, if you're going to be Dennis Lilly and bring out the aluminium bat, you'd better be able to use it. <laughs> <laughs> did did Coop have an aluminium bat? No, no, it didn't, no. No, it didn't. No. Uh, that's funny. It's, um, it's also uh, it's ironic that, you know, you brought up um, – your leader set up and and its effect yeah. on on the fly lines and particular fly lines you want to choose because it really what i wanted to talk to you about tonight sure. was, um, yeah it was different sort of applications of, of fly yeah. lines and, and chris and i have, have previously um uh, you know had a had a 
a well-celebrated um, uh, it's a complete stuff up actually we tr attempted to do a fly line special once it was poorly planned i'll say that from the start and um it just got worse from there now um, even poorly <laughs> but yeah. before we go any further um i know a few people are listening here going hang on you see faults has sort of brushed over why chris isn't there um, oh yeah 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 chris um listen it, it's, it's a pretty private matter uh chris can't be with us this week he um um, I, I don't want to use the word, uh, bail, um, but, uh, you know, um, I, I, I guess, I guess he'll stick his head up soon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Look, I don't want to offer too much up either. Obviously lawyers have a duty of confidentiality and that's, yeah, that's incredibly important, but you know, there, there's a bit of talk around the profession about some guy who'd been, well, I've been not going further than that. No, no, let's, let's just leave it there for, yeah. his, for his dignity yeah. sake. And, yep. You know, hope, hopefully the Courier Mail doesn't find it. Yeah. 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 So, um, but anyway, Chris, um, hope to hear from you soon, buddy. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so, fly lines. Um, <laughs> sure. This is, the, this is the unspecial, I'm guessing. We had the special, right? This is the unspecial. Or, or the, you know, redux or something like that. <laughs> um, so, basically, you know, I, for people who, how do we say this? It'd be great if it'd be great if you just could pick up an eight weight rod, any eight weight rod, and have any eight weight line work on it. As sure. an example, you know, yeah. have a, have a nominated rod weight, you know, work with a nominated line weight, um, and you know, the realities of this are, uh, are really complicated. It is really cloudy. Um, so yes. for starters. Um, lines have a have an actual rating it's measured in grains it's a bit of an old school thing there is a grams equivalent and when you look at it it's shockingly small the actual envelope of of what a what a gram you know like a, a difference between say a seven seven weight um fly line and an eight weight fly line in terms of grams is it's really quite small yeah but yeah it, that that part is objective um largely yeah. there are a few moderating factors we'll talk about later on yes. and then to also set the scene like fly rods aren't bound by the same set of of rules it's largely the rod builders you know opinion um you know that that they want this rod for example to be called an eight weight because they feel it works as an eight weight yeah um, <laughs> so. well, not all not all anglers are equally skilled in their casting of fly lines either so yeah. a, there's a couple of variables in the pot there to stir around and work through i think yeah how do we unpack this like it it, it seems like it there's a really great p potential, and Chris and I definitely fell down this this yeah. this trap of, of you know it, there are a lot of moderating factors that make make it harder and also you know make make it easier I guess too I guess but yeah uh, let let's start firstly by saying like a an eight weight rod mightn't always like an eight weight line. How do you feel about that statement? Look, I think most eight weight rods I've owned would cast most eight weight lines pretty well. Um, yeah. And I think that if you observe the manufacturer's recommendations on rods or lines, you're probably going to be within an envelope, which will be, um, that will be moderated by how good a caster you are. So, yeah. so it, it also depends on what you want to do with a line. So without getting too bogged down, I think you, you, you pretty much could go and buy an eight-weight line, put it on an eight-weight rod, and you'd be able to fish it if, yep. you, if you could cast it okay. Uh, yep. Or even as, even as a beginner. Of course, 
one of the complicating factors we've always had in this debate is the old AFTMA ratings, yes, which go back quite some. <clears throat> I don't remember exactly when, too, but probably at least probably around the time of the Second World War, I would guess, maybe a bit after that, uh, where flyline manufacturers tried to create a single weight value, and I mean weight in terms of the actual weight of the line um, yep. for, each, for each line class. So they said, well, an eight-weight line's got to weigh however much an eight-weight line should weigh. So over time, those traditional line weights have crept up as rods have become more powerful because, remember, back in those days, the rods that we're using were, were bamboo and then fibreglass. Yeah. And it wasn't until the advent of graphite fly rods <clears throat> that lines probably started to change and become a bit heavier. And about the same time, fly line manufacturers started to make lines to do different things. They didn't just make a floater uh, and a sinking line. They started making lines that were, were designed to fish for tarpon or lines that were designed to fish for bass. So, you know, we had a substantial evolution in um, fly rod uh, development and a substantial evolution in fly fishing uh, and so poor old AFTMA kind of got left behind but you can still use those ratings as a baseline but I think for most people though the ratings will be too light for most modern rods they won't they'll still be okay but most people yeah. will probably fish something a little bit heavier and most and this is a, a qualifier most fly lines these days are about one AFTMA rating heavier than they used to be. So most yeah. eight-weight fly lines these days are probably the equivalent of a nine-weight under AFTMA. So it's pretty easy for people to get really confused uh, about, yeah. well, what do I buy? If, when's, you know, it's like oils ain't oils. Uh, yeah. Well, in the fly line game, oils ain't oils because if, if it's based around that older rating system, then it's going to be a lighter in weight, and I mean actual weight, how heavy it is, Yep. Than, um, than it was. So that's the historical kind of paradox we're dealing with, and that does set up yeah. some confusion for people. The second so, most confusing factor then is, is, is about density of lines in terms of how heavy things are, and people often get confused between density and grain weight. Density yes. is just about whether or not it, it floats, sinks slowly, or sinks quickly. Mm -hmm. um, whereas grain weight, you know, 300 grains or 400 grains is just about how heavy that head is. And so you could have a 400-grain floating line. Mm. Uh, you can have a 160-grain sinking line. Yeah. So th th those, that stuff is never explained to people easily. So I'm not surprised people get so bloody confused. Yep. yep. Sorry, I probably talked about something we're going to talk about later. But... <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it is it is a very a very salient point, and it comes up a lot. I've I've had some surprisingly experienced fly fishermen get tripped up, with, particularly with the density line thing. You know, yeah. it's yeah, you know, they make a comment. You know, oh, what are you fishing there, Gold? So I got a you know three fifty grain. You know that. Oh well, I've got a I've got a four hundred grain floater, and well, you know, still going to float, dude. Don't expect it to get down. You know, exactly. Um, it's just going to be heavier to cast. That's all it's going to be. Yeah, it's going to cause the rod to deflect more. Um, and and for the people who like to research stuff, there was, um, you know, if they look, if they're wondering why there wasn't an attempt to standardise uh, rods, there, I don't know if there was an industry wide attempt, but um, there was a group of guys on a fly casting page called Sexy Loops. They tried to 
quantify a series of rods using what they call the common sense method, where they got yeah, um, so I remember that. Yeah, pennies, and they they you know which were a fixed amount, you know, just in in grams to to find out how how much rod was um you know how much weight was required to deflect a rod. I think it was about ninety degrees from memory. Um, so yeah, um, that that's all well and good, but I think that system in itself became just as confusing as the one they were trying to supersede. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think ultimately. How people yeah. cast fly rods makes it. Some people will cast very aggressively. Some people will have a slower stroke. Exactly. Some people will get more line out more quickly and load that rod more quickly. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think there are so many variables in this that um, it's hard to be precise. But yeah, yeah, that uh, systems that we try and use to define things. And, and fly fishermen are they're categorizers. Yes. Uh, they're, they're people who like to have a, a deep understanding of detail. Uh, yes. <clears throat> this is probably one of those areas of detail that often eludes them because they uh, it's hard to get a bit of an understanding. It's one of the reasons why I wrote an article on Fly Life years back trying to kind of demystify some of their stuff. <laughs> now, I'm not sure I did much in de did much demystifying, but um, it, you did. I think I think you did. So just um, for the for the people at home who have got a collection of Fly Lives or, or whatever, you want number 85 spring. Oh, there you go. 16, um, and the name of the article is Lines in the Stand by Bill Mitchell. Yeah, so um, that's, a, that's a really, uh, that's a good one uh, to have a look at. Uh, and it came after another great one called Number 84, which oh. uh, had a great article in there about Morton Bay Longtubs. Enough about me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and ironically, number 86 has got some cool stuff in it too. Tully River, I'm just looking at the, the cover oh, yeah. now, yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, Sunshine Coast, Left Avenue. Yeah, so there's a few. Anyway, Lines in the Sand, Fly Life number 85, it's got diagrams. It is supported by, um, I think online, there's an extra. Yeah, there's an online article, yeah. Some, yeah. Of, the some of the table data is dated because Fly Lines change so much. They change so much, don't they? Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. We've had a date a year. Yeah, we can talk about that later. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, but just making a, a note, mental note to myself, can we bring that point back up later? Because um, I've got a few examples there I'd like to talk about. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to, before we moved on to that, just say, uh, well, Bill, well, I'll, I'll, I'll put it out there. You can re re rebuke it or rebut it if you want. But um, I think. If you're a beginner and, and this is starting to sound confusing or it's too hard, it it doesn't need to be. Like, it doesn't matter if – it really doesn't matter if you've got your eight-weight rod and you put a seven-weight line on it. If you like it, that's cool. If it works for you, that's cool. So, if you've got your eight-weight line and you put a nine uh, – eight-weight rod and you put a nine-weight on it, ten-weight, whatever, I don't give a flying shit. If nah. it works for you and you're having fun and you're catching fish and the, the gear's doing what you want, continue. Please continue. How do you feel about that comment, Bill? Look, I really, I really uh, represent that comment, and I think that it might have been. I don't know, maybe that was WC Fields that said that. But um, <laughs> what I think about that is, is on the forum, the Saltwater Fly Fishing Forum, which uh, yeah. you are a frequent visitor and I'm a moderator. Um, there's a there's a page, there's a thread there about lines I have known, which I started, yeah. and I, I started that because when I started fly fishing, um, I tried lots of lines because I was very keen to learn about which lines would suit me best. 
But mm-hmm. of course, what I found in doing that was different rods like different lines and different lines like different situations. Yep. So it's always going to be a case of trial and error. Um, mm-hmm. If your starting point is the same line weight matched to the rod weight, that's a good place to start. But then you might find, yeah, no, this rod's probably needs something a bit heavier because I'm not feeling it load. When you come back to that rod and line combo, when you have, you know, improved your casting, you might find, well, actually, my timing's actually a lot better now. And, in fact, that line and rod combo isn't too bad. Yes. So, you know, you need to experiment. And I, I remember the first, the first combo I ever felt had a magic combination was one you put me onto, which mm. wasn't one I'd expected, which was a XI39 weight. Yes. And a bonefish line, a Rio oh, bonefish line. In that fact. was sweet. Now, yeah. I would have, I mean, I think most people would probably presume that, that that line, because it's got a long, relatively light, it's a presentation taper, and we mm. can talk about what those things are later, but I would have thought that wouldn't have suited that sage pretty quick action rod, but in fact, that was a magic combo. Um, yeah. <clears throat> however, the same line on the S4S, which I had uh, and fished alongside the XI3, just didn't do it for me. So you really need to, and as I did in that Lines I've Known thread, you really need to experiment. You don't have to go out and buy a million lines like I did. Um, you can borrow lines off your mates. You can have park casting days, mm. um, all those things. But ultimately, fishing them on the water with the flies you're going to use for the fish you want to catch is the best way to work out which line actually works. But, you know, your starting point is match your line with your rod weight. Yep. Yeah, it, it's it's a good point. So I guess, I guess this... Um this podcast would probably be aimed at people looking to move beyond that, you know, and hopefully those yep. people get something out of it, what we're about to say. Of course, yeah. 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 Um, so, and, you know, I guess let's let's just launch into the anatomy of fly lines, mate. Right? Yeah, let's do it. Yep. So start, so start at the fly end. What do you got? Well, obviously, you've got your fly is tied to a leader, and the leader's about nine foot long, and that's usually either mono or fluorocarbon. <clears throat> that's connected to your fly line with either a loop or a knot. And there's various arguments about which of those will work the best in terms of transferring energy. I fish them both. I reckon they both work okay, so let's not get bogged down there. Yep. The first part of the fly line they come to after your leader knot is, is the tip. And the tip um, is a little different depending on the sort of line it is, but generally it's a relatively short section. Yep. And that's actually that's actually the presentation part of the line. Yep. Now, it's not just there to, so you can tie your leader onto it. It's actually about presentation. So it's generally quite fine and quite skinny. Might mm-hmm. only be a few feet long, though. Yep. Um, you're then running to that first bit of the line that actually turns into, into fatter and where it actually starts to open up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's actually, and if you look at a diagram of a line, it's a little bit like, I guess, an elongated diamond. Mm-hmm. So the you know the first part is what we call the front taper, yep. and and that and that so that first opening up of the fly line's width, uh, the front taper again might only be anywhere from geez it could be anywhere from three or four feet up to six or eight feet. Mm-hmm. That's really about turnover. So yep. remember the the tip is presenting the the leader but it's that front taper that's actually turning the tip over and turning the leader over. Yeah. Then behind the front taper, you've got a big long stretch of what's called belly. Okay. Sure. Now yeah. that could be anywhere from, geez, anywhere from twenty-five to 
50 feet, depending how long the entire head is. So yep. when we'll get to a stage where I say, okay, the tip, the front taper, the belly and the rear taper, that collectively, that whole shooting match is called the, the head. Yeah. Okay, so so we've got our tip, which is about presentation. We've got our front taper, which is about, actually about turnover. We've mm-hmm. then got our belly. That's all about carrying the fly line. Yep. So the sole, sole thing that that belly does is it continues to carry the line, carry the momentum mm-hmm. of the unrolling leader and fly. Yep. And then you come to the – as then it, it backs down like the reverse of the front taper. It backs down from wide to skinny which yep. is a reverse taper. And that can be, uh, again, anywhere from, you know, three to however many, eight feet long. And that's really about control. Yeah. So the way the fly line unfolds is that uh, as it casts um, and unrolls, the tip is presenting the fly. The front taper is turning that tip and leader over. Mm-hmm. The belly is carrying it so you can actually cast distance and then you're controlling the last part through the rear taper. And so how that all works together is one big, long head, which mm. could be anywhere from 25 to 70 feet long. Yeah. So, you know, that, that model could be anywhere from quite, quite short to quite long um, will give you very different kind of casting effects. But uh, most heads, that's, that's the typical weight forward design. And there are yeah. other sorts of fly lines which we don't need to get bogged down in because they're no. we really only use weight forward tapers these days. Um, yeah, but that's the and then and off the back of the head. So after you run out that that back taper, then runs into the running line, and that you know depending on how long your line is, that could be anywhere from fifty to seventy, eighty feet itself. And that's mm-hmm. just the skinny line that sort of sits behind the head. Um, uh, and you can you can talk about how each of those things work in in uh, concert or, or individually. Uh, yep. So, you know, a, a, a thicker and heavier front taper will turn over a bigger fly. A longer and skinnier tip will be much more of a presentation line. You know, a longer full head will allow you to carry more line in the air because as soon as you hit that rear taper in the running line, gravity starts to take over. Is that a fair, fair description, you think? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the mind boggles, I'm just in the background when you're talking about this, I'm thinking, you know, like uh, competition casters, as as an example, they love a long head line. Yeah, and yeah. The reason for that is that the um, longer head, you know, d- delays the turnover of the of the tip through the front taper, of course, as you mentioned. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the longer they can delay that turnover, the further the line carries oh, it, of you course. know. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole yeah, bunch of, of different, different, yeah, things, and it, it might get confusing. And I'm really hoping we can, we can, yeah. you know, that's, that's one of the troubles is trying to get into that. If if you're lost about now, just Google fly line head. You're going to see that yeah. diagram, which is pretty universal. It's going to have a skinny bit yeah. that ties to a leader, which is the tip. It's going to have that first step up, which is the front taper. It's going to mm. have a long, thick part, which is the which is the belly. And then yep. it's going to have a, a, a part that steps back down, which is the rear taper than the running line. But, yeah, those things can all do very different things. And I guess what I've described is the basics. Uh, yeah. The basics of fly line anatomy, really. Yeah, and the fly line's performance is probably a function of the relationship of all the different geometries and proportions of those. Oh, of course. Of the, of course. And, you know, and that's where things can start to, to get. You know, not not difficult. They all they all sort of work. Just some some work better yeah. for some situations than others, and you know, um, they're not 
they're not the sort of detail that's useful on a podcast. It's the sort <laughs> of things that if you can't show someone a picture, they probably won't get it. Um, yeah, and that's yeah. not about their intelligence. Just, that's just about how challenging it is to actually describe things. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. give an example of, you know, a modern saltwater fly line is probably going to have a relatively short tip. It's going to yep. have a relatively fat, heavy front taper, like kind of short and dumpy front taper. It's probably going to have a, a belly that's about 30 to 35 feet long. And then it's probably going to have a more gradual back taper than it did front. So it's going to be sort of punchy up front, um, thick through the middle, and then it's going to taper off. So turnover of a bigger fly, but then also the ability to carry that line and control the, the cast as it's going out. So um, a lot of modern fly lines, general tapers, look like that these days. Yeah. So we, we hang a lot of shit on a guy um, on, on a podcast here who we, we famously suggested had an aggressive head, but I, I think... It, <laughs> Probably more, more, uh, more aptly describe some of the uh, fly lines you can get today, and um, I think uh, would you agree an aggressive head would be something which you know had maybe short, had a short front taper, had a lot of uh, had you know comparatively heavy head and, yeah, and a short, yeah. short belly and maybe even a short back taper as well. Yeah, most of those aggressive <coughs> aggressive modern saltwater fly lines are probably around 35 to 38 feet long some of them are shorter but let's say yep. around you know sort of 30 30 to 38 feet long yep um and and most of the grains will be in the first 30 feet so most of the grains will be in the front taper and the belly <coughs> All and right. then there'll be a gradual run out so you know the, the the kind of the shorter dumpier heads are harder to control once they fly out of the out of the once the whole heads out of the rod tip so, you know, th this is why bonefish tapers are 50, have a 50 feet long head. 50 feet head, yeah. Because you can keep controlling your cast to make a, a better presentation. So they tend to be um, lighter uh, and long, progressive tapers, both on front and back. And back. So I love a long, uh, for that style. Oh, oh who, we all yeah. have a long back taper. That's correct. Well, yeah. Rio's technical tarpon used to be a 70 foot long head. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. I know a lot of people didn't like that line, but I thought it was a fabulous line. Um, yeah. Because you can really control, um, you know, th well, their permit line's similar. Uh, the airflow wet tip, uh, the clear tip floaters, same, 50 mm. foot head. So, you know, <clears throat> the, you think about the average cast you make in salt water is probably 40 to 60 feet. Um, yep. For those sorts of lines, you've not lost control of the head at that stage. You've still got control of the fly line. You're fishing a dumpy taper where the, the front taper and the belly and the rear taper is all in 30 feet then you're into the running line by the time you get to 40 and, yep. and, you've, and you've lost control and with a, with a loss of control, you've got a loss of accuracy. You've probably got a loss of presentation um, yep. as well. <clears throat> well, if you're fishing for, you know, um, in a mosh pit of fish and you need to throw a meat fly, well, yep. maybe a quick, short, dumpy cast is your best thing. But um, yep. most people uh, think that those sorts of lines will be great, for example, to fish into the mangroves to Barramundi, but of course they're not because they're don't have the control. No control. They're not accurate, and they dump like anything. So, in fact, sure. yep. <laughs> counterintuitively, a bonefish line is probably a better mangrove line than a, half of these very dumpy headed lines. But again, as you learn to cast better, you learn to control most lines, um, you know, as well. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah, hey, Bill, I just realised as we're talking it, we may have made this point already, but I feel like we mightn't have made it well enough. So when when um, 
when fly line manufacturers designate a weight on that grain envelope, it's only on the thir first 30 feet of the fly line. Correct. Uh, oh, is that, is that doesn't include the level tip, right? Mm, I or don't think so because the level. The le uh, no, it probably does include the level tip actually. Right. Because it's, it's not it's not particularly long on most lines. It's um, so neg negligible. <coughs> I'd, have to, I'd have to take that one on advisement, but, but I think that. Um, yeah, go on. Sorry, if you're making a point about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just yeah, it's an interesting one. The 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 point I'm trying to make though is the better fly line manufacturers when they'll have they'll have a number of weights, um, you know, a number of statistics for for the fly line. They'll have, you know, they'll tell you what the anatomy <coughs> of the fly line is, like the head length, the the tapers, um, the individual tapers that is, like the front, rear taper, etc. But they'll also oh, tell you, of course, yeah, they'll also tell you the the weight of the head. The entire head, yes. so if it's a fifty-foot line, yep. it'll have the weight of that, and it'll also have the thirty, the thirty-foot weight, um, which is of course yeah. with the, the the tackle manufacturer's designation for it. So you know, for yes, example, AFTMA's, yeah, AFTMA's yeah. based on the first thirty feet of line weight. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting thing to say because, like, you know, say you're casting, I don't know, to a scenario I'm familiar with, seventy, eighty foot to a tuna. All right, you, you you might have two or three back casts. The first back cast. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I was more familiar with that scenario. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> oh, come down, mate. We'll we'll get I you. Out. I'm yeah. sorry. I yeah, know. no. We will. Um, but you know, your first your first back cast might be twenty foot of line. So, if you know, might the rod will feel underloaded. Your next your back, next back cast might have you know, you might shoot twenty foot of line into it. Your next next cast might have forty foot. So, you know what I mean. You're starting to yeah yeah. The the rod's got to perform at at you know underweight accurate weight <coughs> and heavier weight you know um yeah. and it, it really is you know it's a it must be a challenge for for rod manufacturers and line manufacturers alike to to get something that is not only works but feels nice too you know yeah. look i think most line manufacturers probably realize that people pick their rod and then have to find a line to match yeah um, there would no doubt be some people who pick a taper and then find a rod to match because their style of fishing demands a particular sort of taper. I mean, if you know, if you all you did was fish for bonefish, then um, you'd want a rod that would throw a long, progressive taper. You know, so we'd be talking about a longish tip. We'd be talking about a fairly long front taper, yeah. a good long belly, and a good long rear taper. You know, the head on a bonefish line is about half its whole length. Yeah, probably fifth. In fact, I think the Rio bonefish line. It's almost bang on 50 foot, same yeah. with the airflow clear, clear tip. And so that's a very different line to when the head is simply one third of the length. So, um, But as I tell people, look, if you like that taper and it feels too light, just buy the next line size up. There's no rule that says you can't put a nine weight bonefish line on an eight weight rod. You can mm -hmm. put whatever bloody well line you want on it. So yeah. if you find a particular taper is really good, you know, it's short and punchy and you like that for the fishing you're doing or it's long and more progressive or it's or it's longer but it's got a, an aggressive kind of front taper. You just, you just buy, the, buy the one that actually suits the rod because if it's the taper you're liking, it's the taper that's, um, that you're getting, you know, benefit from, you may need to go up in line size though because, you know, some of those lines are, are quite different. The other problem that we face is that life fly line manufacturers yeah, mainly um, ignore so one fly line manufacturer's line will an eight weight, and it will be 
on. And I'm not going to name names about this because this just becomes a yeah, it's not Holden and Ford thing. But but let's just yeah. say if we if we said eight weight general saltwater tapers, okay, and now most of them are around thirty eight to forty feet head length. Most of them have got a, a relatively a relatively aggressive head, a relatively aggressive rear taper, and the fly line's about a third of the length of the whole line. The head's about the third of the length. Third within the that, within within all within all of the manufacturers, some yeah. of those lines will be will be quite light for even the fifty year old ranking system. So they'll be, you know, sort of bang on AFTMA, and others will be as heavy as a ten weight line. So there's yeah. absolutely. In fact, I think. The other night, which was a close to closer to a ten and a half, um, yet it's labelled an eight weight. Now, you know, we can get you know knocked out of place by that as much as we want, but the best thing to do is just try a few lines and find the one that suits you and the rod best. Using eight, using the the weight of the labelled weight, just as a guide. That's all you can do. Yeah, it, it is. It is amazing. And, and once again. For people who are thinking this is all too hard and, and that we're complicating a, an issue, as long as it works for you, do it, all right? And, you know, it's it's there's no really right <clears throat> There's More to the point, actually, better way to put it, there's not actually a wrong answer. No, there's no wrong. There's no wrong yeah. at all. Yeah. And, and in the in the end, just, just having a think about I mean, one of the good things you can think about, uh, this is a hint, um, is that, even though species-specific tapers don't always work perfectly with our, yeah. with our you know Australian species, <clears throat> generally a bass, an American bass line is going to be a pretty decent floater for throwing big freshwater flies. You know, yeah. on, on that sort of same sort of rods you'd use for bass in America, sort mm -hmm. of that five to seven weight freshwater. You know, whether it's sooty grunners up here, or <clears throat> there's there's, yeah. an, there's an affinity between those which means there's an affinity between line use. It's a little more complicated when it comes to saltwater fish, but if you viewed tarpon tapers as being pretty good for pelagics, you probably wouldn't go wrong. So they're generally sort of a 38 to 42 foot head, got some aggressiveness to throw a decent sized fly. Uh, they're not really made for throwing meat. They're made for a kind of mix of presentation and a bigger fly. So, you know, you couldn't go wrong throwing a tarpon taper at queenfish and, you know, trevally and things like that. Similarly, if you're fishing the slower, smaller saltwater species, a bonefish floater would be pretty good as well. So, um, and a lot of people get a redfish taper because they think it's sort of somewhere in between, and maybe that yeah. might be the case as well. But you know, you can't go wrong by looking at more the environment and the techniques used to catch those fish. Don't look at the fish because um, <clears throat> it's more about the size of the fly and the type yeah. of presentation that would normally occur. You know, tarpon tends to be a long tarpon tends to be a mid to long accurate cast with a relatively you know like a two o. So it's the sort of thing yeah. you throw at a you know a um well, a permit or a queenfish or something like that. I guess that's a really good point. Actually, there's there's, there's a couple of good points I want to unpack there. There's first of all, um, uh, bonefish lines. Uh, you know, a lot of Aussies go to you know, <clears throat> the island or. You know, more yeah. likely we'll, we'll be going to Cocos Keeling if we want to get a fix of bonefish. But the um, the the point the point is a lot of the you know your traditional bonefish lines a lot of them are designed you know with um, with fishing from a boat in mind. You know, yeah. um, and you know the idea of area light. Well, I can tell you one thing: when you walk when you're wading, most of your shots will be under fifty foot. You know, to bonefish. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, aerializing uh, 
you know, 50 foot line um, when you're, you know, perhaps wading up to your waist. And, you know, Bill, you're, you're on six foot, I'm at six foot four. You know, like it's um, <laughs> even I think you've been above, generous about me. <laughs> even for us above average <laughs> in height, guys, it's uh, yeah. it's a challenge. Um, but yeah, and and the first time I went to Christmas Island, did fish that traditional bonefish line, and then uh, a few times when I after that I went to a redfish taper, which was around thirty-ish foot, um, yeah. and a similar amount of grains to the total of that head. Um, but it, it fished yeah. a lot better. But what I did have to do, and we, we, we might want to talk about this later on, is um, is uh, I did fish a heavier butted leader to to delay the turn yeah. the turnover in the in the redfish's um, head. You know, slightly more aggressive than say the bonefish head. So to get that delicate presentation, I did I did um, adjust the formula of of my leader a bit too. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, you can just lengthen the leader too. That always helps. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, so here's a question though, Bill. Would you add would you add to the tip or to the tippet or would you add to the to the butt of the leader? In that scenario. Well, I think if I was I think if I was trying to present more carefully and softly, I'd probably I'd probably add tippet. Um, I probably wouldn't want the leader to be throwing and turning over any harder. And I guess that um, you know, I've always Base my most of my leaders on kind of lefty craze old saltwater leader pattern, which is you know half the entire length is butt section and the rest yep. is whatever you make up a mid and tip. Um, mm -hmm. But I think um, I, I'm inclined, and I, I tell you that this is going to sound weird, but in fact the biggest um, the biggest parallel to fishing bonefish that I have is fishing bastards because yeah. they're slow moving, they're looking down. They're generally smaller flies and they generally require a softer presentation. Yep. And so on those days when I get it's a bit slipped out, I'll be inclined to fish a long, lighter line. I'll fish an eight weight. I'll fish one of those 50-foot heads like a bonefish line and I'll probably fish a longer leader, uh, you know, maybe 10-foot. And then if I'm not, if I'm spooking fish, I'll add more tippet, um, yep. which would just give me an even and lighter tippet as well. I might even fish down a... Uh, you know, I might chuck on another foot and a half of 12 pound yep. or, or 16. So definitely you can certainly change the dynamics of your line by changing the, by changing your fly and your leader. And absolutely yeah. it's all, it's, it's all an integrated system. And this is one of the things that people have got to get used to is that, you know, if you fish a, if you fish a beautiful long tapered bonefish line, but you put a four foot leader on it, it's going to yeah. turn over like a mongrel and it's going to slap down like anything. Mm -hmm. um, you put a twelve foot leader on that big long on that big long bonefish line, and it's going to roll out beautifully, and it's going to present incredibly softly. So, yeah, you know, th we we can't talk about fly lines in a vacuum. They are part of one entire system, which of course is generated by your own casting ability. So there's some variables in there about how you cast. But <clears throat> I think sometimes those lighter lines can be harder for people to feel loading, and they can be harder to actually to load but i think they tend to bring out casters technique better than those heavy lines where people rely on you know those chunky aggressive heads to kind of literally just run out the guides and blast it um, out <clears throat> yeah. yeah and I, I think that for the most part those lines i haven't yet really worked out what their purpose is i mean i think they're okay in some kind of quick kind of quick fire scenarios but for the most part mm. um they're not helpful to people when they're starting out i'd encourage people to buy 
a bonefish line as their first line to try, as long as they're not fishing huge flies. If they're fishing yeah. estuary flies like in a number four or a number two, a bonefish line will really teach you to control the head of the line because you'll have control, because you'll have that big long belly, which will give you a long carry, and you'll yep. have that back taper. Whereas if you're trying to learn with a short dumpy head, then you're forever kind of losing it and it's <laughs> flying out. It's, you know, it's quite hard. So you know, there are lines that are clearly better, better for people beginning than others. When I um, when I started fly fishing largely in, in southeast Queensland, the only lines you could get were uh, scientific anglers. Um, you know, there were a few other bits and pieces. Rio was starting to be a thing, and I think there was That's a little probably. bit of Cort yeah, Cortland floating around. But I remember SA, like if you wanted a floater, you had your choice of um, you had uh, you had a choice of a bass bug, a head start, which was a eighty foot oh, line, yeah. really heavy, a short head. And uh, and and uh, so bonefish bass bass bug and the um and the yeah. Uh, yeah, the head start and in intermediates you had your choice between uh, bonefish up to about nine weight and then the tarpon series took over which was a 40, 45 foot head um, yeah. but a thicker yeah, running that. line and then you had the clear <coughs> striper yeah um yeah. yeah which it had various iterations there was an intermediate striper and a fast sink striper and you know there was um you know different I remember. I remember they had a, a clear or a slime line style, style striper. I think they were yeah. a thirty-two or thirty-six foot head, and they were a really blasty line. Like they were, yeah. they were, you know, with a line of choice for tuna guys down this way. Um, but they they had a slightly, they were more prone to tangling because they had the thinner running line. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, so again, you have that relationship between you know running line thickness and and how how the line cast, whereas. Um, you know, the trade-off for that was uh, the tangliness and, you know, the yeah. handling of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Look, there's, so, no doubt, there's no doubt a, a slightly thicker running line is easier to handle. And in, in some situations it's better because, for example, on, the, on a boat deck it doesn't blow off the deck, whereas a skinny running line correct. can blow off the deck. Um, but then when you're fishing wading, if you're using a stripping basket or something, it, it can be, you know, more in the way, but... I, I would generally opt for a thicker running line than a thinner running line. I know a lot of people like that thinning, thinner running line, but I don't think it offers as many advantages as a more, you know, There's no real trade-off. Yeah, there's no real disadvantage, like, in the trade-off other than probably you, want, you might lose a few feet in the carry. But I know yeah. um, SA have started getting around that to some degree by offering a handling section on some of their lines. Um, yeah, yeah. Just slightly thicker bit than your hand. Some of them even have a different texture when you get to that section, so you don't even have to look at it. Um, you can feel it that oh, this is the point where you know I don't let it slip any further. The head's out, and I just haul on this, you know, um, you know, or, or when, when you're retrieving, you can feel that texture come in, or you can hear it actually audible coming through the. You the can rod. certainly hear. You can certainly hear just through recoils and um, yeah. I, you know, a lot of these things are designed to sell lines to fishermen and yep. they're very effective because, you know, it's a bit like buying something, you know, a computer or a car or, you know, people are looking for features and, and, and the more features that uh, fly line manufacturers can, you know, advertise, the more someone will say, well, this one's got that, you know, Joe Bloggs technology that allows it to do that. But in the end, <clears throat> a lot of those things disappear when you start casting lines more often and you get better at it and you just really don't notice some of those features that, yeah. that um, are put up there. Um, I do notice texture because texture, um, you know, I did fish all the way through those modern textured lines starting with, 
uh, some of the dimpled ones and then getting into the shark yeah. skins. Uh, That's and right. And the, the, the softer textures than the, now the new textures. But, you know, Airflow's got the, you know, the, 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 ridge. the texture running linear down this, you know, the ridge line running yeah. um, longitudinally. Uh, you know, SA's got a, a kind of a, a soft, rough texture that gives, gives it more whatever. So they've all got their own um, textures and things. You really notice a big difference when you fish a, a non-textured line, like an intermediate, because uh, yeah. they're slick as hell. And um, one thing I did notice, uh, I was talking to one of the top anglers in the challenge, and, and he, he told me that he fishes an intermediate line all day long into the snags, which yeah. really surprised me, because throwing an intermediate line very accurately is hard, because with wet hands, they can be quite slippery. They, yeah. they shoot very well, which is why they're a great pelagic line, and of course they sink, which is gets the, the fly down, but... I was really surprised, and I thought this guy's casting must be pretty damn good because controlling an intermediate line into the snags all day long and being very accurate um, requires a fair bit of concentration. So, whereas a, whereas a floating line is a bit grippier, it's a bit more textured. Even if it's not a textured line, it's easier to hang on to. Mm-hmm. It tends to be fatter, uh, and so yeah. In the end, I guess it comes down to what you get used to. But um, yeah. I think most most people would benefit starting out getting themselves a general saltwater taper it's usually temperate rated so it's neither cold or hot yeah fish both climates they tend to be about 38 to 40 foot head they tend to be a moderate aggressive sort of style and they'll suit most flies so that's a good starting point and then you know if that feels light on your rod then maybe you need one of those maybe you need to upline or maybe you need one of those more aggressive tapers or if it feels too heavy maybe you need to go down to a you can downline as well. There's nothing wrong with fishing downline. Yeah. Uh, that little Scott, that little Scott fly rod, I've got seven foot seven nine weight. I've fished everything from six weights through to ten weights on that. Um, shout out to Peter over WA who sent me a teeny line for the comp, which was oh, a Peter ten Bay. weight. Peter, yeah, he sent me yeah. a teeny line in the comp. Yeah. I'm going to catch him up for that. But, uh, and he's won a no ten weight. Yeah. yeah, he didn't muck around, and it's a, it was a recommendation for that line and. and and that was a 90-foot-long uh, and yeah, fairly short, dumpy head, and it, it worked not too bad, uh, even though it was a 10-weight on what is a very short, relatively – it's a 20-year-old rod. So um, yeah. you know, I guess the more, we, the more we try and explain what's best, the more the truism is that, in fact, you've just got to try different lines on different rods and see what actually floats your boat or floats your fly. Um, yeah. Because there, there's, no, there's no silver bullet here. You just It's trial and error for most – but, you know, understanding that fly line anatomy and what sort of – understanding what sort of line you need for what sort of fishing is probably what people get most confused about. They don't mm-hmm. really know what – you know, if they say, I, I want to go catch, you know, Taylor in Sydney Harbour, you know, what sort of fly line do I need? Should I get one of these big outbound, you know, Leviathan, you know, Titan, whatever the manufacturer calls these more heavy, aggressive-headed lines? Mm-hmm. Uh, do it, you know. Do I need an intermediate? Do I need a, a sink tip? Do I need a, you know, I would say the Swiss Army knife, Swiss Army knife of fly lines is the intermediate tip. Yeah. You yeah. can yeah. you can fish that almost anywhere. You can fish it on a tuna school. You can fish yeah. it in the snags. You can fish it on the flats. It's almost like a VB ad when it rolls off my tongue. <laughs> um, yeah. You can fish it any. You can fish it anywhere, and I, and yeah. So again, I have to agree with some. That. Yeah, I'll just jump in here. I've, yeah, go for it. I've been um, the last oh, three years I've, I've, on my 
annual northern trip, I've hardly taken that fly line off, an intermediate tip. Um, I just find it so versatile. I'm talking, you know, shallow flats where I could use a float. Um, use it, you know, uh, shallow medium flats. I've used it on bombies when I put clouses down to try and get coral trout. Um, Barrowing dams, uh, pelagics, yep. like tuna, uh, queenfish. I just, I, it just works so well for me. I, I don't really feel a need to take it off. You know? No, no, and I, I absolutely agree. And <clears throat> I think, um, you know, uh, the full intermediate line obviously requires you to strip in a lot more of the head mm. in order to pick up and recast, and that that's kind of slows you down a bit. Um, so, and then you know, if you think about it, the running line too with with a full intermediate, you know, if if you're waiting or it falls into the water when, when you're oh when yeah, you're in the boat, it's just you can't rely on it not falling into trouble, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so. most people would fish floaters if they're out of a boat and they're fishing to stationary objects like a snag or a bank um, and you can get away with a wet tip there. Most people are using immediates if they're fishing deeper water and probably, you know, three metres and deeper, you know, two and a half metres and deeper. Yeah. Um, but, and, you know, if once you get over that sort of five metre mark, a lot of people will use a sinking line. But, you yeah. know, you can use an intermediate as deep as you want. You've just got to wait longer for it to get down there because you've got yeah. to know how fast it sinks. Um, yeah. So, but, yeah, that's definitely the Swiss Army knife, that thing. Uh, and there are numerous versions of that, including those from a six-foot intermediate head through to a 15-foot intermediate head. Yep. And then there's a whole bunch of ones that are essentially a short intermediate where there's a sort of 30-foot intermediate head yep. and, a, and a running line. Uh, and... But, you know, they will be as difficult to cast as most intermediates. You'll have to strip in a fair bit of it. So a good easy starting point for the Swiss Army knife is to buy the, the sort of 8 to 10 foot head. Uh, you mm. can fish down a bit deep. As you say, you can fish dams, freshwater flats, tuna schools, all those things. You know, it's not uncommon to have, for us when I go on a trip up to Hinchy to have 8, 9 and 10 all with intermediate headlines. Intermediate like, like, yeah, 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 that's what I meant. Sorry, intermediate yeah, tip. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. What that's you might right. call a wet tip or an intertip line. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, you know, with a you know somewhere around that ten foot head, um, uh, and that that intermediate tip actually helps anchor the fly on the bottom. It helps get flies down below wind chop. It helps flies mm. stay where they are. Uh, you can you can fish a popper off those things, and you've just got to strip a little bit faster. And in fact, it'll it'll give you a bit more friction surface tension. Yeah. friction um so it'll make it pop rather than skid you know yeah yeah the only time they're really not useful is when you're fishing real skinny and i mean real skinny like knee deep to thigh deep but they're not great there um yeah. and so all you need to do there is just chuck on a full floater and just have a heavier flyer a longer a longer leader you know mm. so you, you can work your work your way around these issues where relatively easily if you think about it for a bit um, and um, think about how deep you're fishing. And I think that book of Morsi's about uh, thinking about fly depth retrieve is a good way of thinking about it. Just where you, before you go fishing, think about what am I chasing? Where does that fly need to go? And and how and how will I line help achieve that? And, um, yeah. you know, skinny water floater, kind of everything else, a, a wet tip, uh, and deeper water intermediate or sinking. So that's not comp that's not a complicated part of it. I think most people get that yeah. part. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if yeah. you can only afford one flyer, only afford one fly outfit, which many people can, and it's expensive gear, then you want to have something that does it all. Go for the wet tip. 
I can tell you one thing. If you start out thinking you own, only own one fly outfit, you're going to have more than one <laughs> before long, you know. If you enjoy I started, flight, out. Be I started out started out that way. and yeah, uh, I'd hate to think how many fly, outs, fly outfits have uh, graced my presence over time. <laughs> Far too many. Uh, <laughs> hey, Bill, I've got a question for you. You and I both like, um, you know, technical flats fishing, uh, side fishing scenarios. Um how much have you dabbled with uh, low stretch cores, and what are your thoughts on it? I have fished a couple of those low stretch lines. Again, I won't go into brands, um, yeah, because a couple of them have got them. Uh, I th- I think I think they you definitely feel a difference. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you feel a difference on the bite, uh, and that depends a little bit on what sort of fish it is. Um, I really noticed that on a low stretch line and i'll say what that one was uh which was a rio um uh whatever that uh the flats, premium, pro. flats pro but the bonefish version oh direct core uh, the original direct core bonefish and i fished it one day on on bastards and you could really feel their brim like yeah. bite like you really did feel it um yep. i do i do have a couple of other lines that are quite similar um, where I've felt that, and certainly the Airflow Flats Master. Yes. I'm not sure you'd call it a direct core line, but it has a similar feel where mm-hmm. you do get a fairly direct bite through the line. Um, some lines do seem to be a bit stretchier than others. Um, this is not a competition, so I won't get into that, but there, yeah. certainly I think direct direct core lines can, can give you I don't know if it's quite the difference we found when we first started fishing braid after fishing, you know, monofilament. Well, yep. we went, holy cow, I can actually feel the bite. Trouble was, everything felt huge um, when you first yep. started fishing braid. You know, you'd catch a Moses perch and you thought you had a mangrove jack on just because of the, the transmission of communication of the bites. So, yeah. Look, I think if you're fishing something that's got that kind of bite, then it's certainly something that you'd think about. Um, I don't know who else offers them. I haven't looked at that type it, of line for a while, but uh, I'm sure there's a few a few manufacturers it, make those sorts of lines. They've they've certainly. Uh, I agree. They've changed. Um, I've I've caught fish. I'm I'm going out on a limb here. I've caught fish using those those sort of lines that I wouldn't have struck at um, with with vis- like go- going off visual cues right so yeah. you know you, sometimes you can't the fish is too far away it's facing the wrong way the water's turbid or they're really discreet feeders like bastards they have a habit of you know you, they can pick up the fly and spit it you don't even know it um mm. you know they without even moving right um and using these these sort of flies i've been able to feel the bite where in the past i would have just been fishing blind or even to the point where you know i've got the confidence to leave the fly still um and which is you know always a great play for some of these technical fish um you know in in the in the knowledge that i don't have to um keep the fly you know keep the fly line moving just in case there's some t- uptake of tension you know previously i'd yeah, yeah. ultra slow retrieve just to feel for that peck you know like the fly's going one way they're going the other but now i just feel like i've, I've i don't know if it if it's me, it's just confidence. Or it's like a fly fishing maturity thing. Not sure, but I, f- I love the the low stretch line, particularly on bastards. You know, yeah, like, I think the like, the early ones were terrible, and again, I won't name names, but the early the early low stretch lines were like fencing wire. Yeah, uh, and if you had a combination of no, of low stretch and clear, they yep. were truly truly like a slinky. 
um, <laughs> and and I remember walking out the flats and stripping off you know seventy feet of one of these particular lines, and it actually you know rolled itself up into a kind of slinky that was no longer than about two foot long at my Ooh. left you know thigh, and I remember thinking, oh my god, what's going to happen with this? But and you know like you catch a couple of fish on it, it stretched a bit. But I think a lot of people went off clear lines because their early experiences were terrible. Um, yeah. Similarly, I think a lot of people probably haven't picked up direct core or low stretch because of some of those experiences. And I do think people probably need to read instructions because I've heard a few stories of people trying to stretch the direct core or low stretch lines like they might do an older style line and actually uh, separating the core from the coating, uh, which you can do. Um, I've heard that it happened a bit, so I suspect some of the stories we hear about lines being defective are actually people treating a a, a, two, a twenty twenty one line like a nineteen ninety line, where you did have to, you kind of wrapped it around one elbow and then wrapped it around the other elbow, and you pulled bloody hard. Yes, and then, you know yeah. you, that you had to stretch lines so they remained um, workable. There's a, a funny name for it these days. They they call it annealing the line. It's a, a technical yes. word for having a stretch. You know, you yeah, but um, well, that that might be a good point. Assuming you've finished on that topic, to move sure. over onto um, onto line maintenance and in particular, you know, yeah, stretching. Of course. How do you go about it, Bill? Look, I'm a bit of a sucker for manufacturer product. Yep. Um, I I don't believe in using different products or different lines. So, for example, I clean my airflow lines with the airflow, you know, Wizlube, uh, which looks completely different to the scientific anglers one which looks completely different to the Rio one. And because I have all of those brands, Lines and Cortland, mm -hmm. I, I just go with the manufacturer's recommendations. That's sure. for dressing the line. So um, so there's, I, just I, to make a distinction, there's, there's cleaning and there's dressing, right? Of course. So the first yeah. thing you should do before you go on a trip is actually clean the line because you don't know what's sitting on there. There could be salt. There could be, God, there could be, you know, a dead cockroach. In there. there could be whatever. Um, you, yep. you need to strip all the line off. Uh, if you're going to be serious about it, you'd use one of those abrasive pads. Uh, some of the line manufacturers make them. You generally use a little bit of uh, very light um, soapy water or something like that just to uh, have a very light uh, cleaning agent. You don't want to use a very strong. I know people talk about Armor Oil and WD-40 and all these things. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't need yeah. to use those things. All you need to yeah. do is, is warm, lightly soapy water is plenty good. Um, so you're going to run the whole fly line through either a tissue or an abrasive pad, a fly line abrasive pad. I don't mean like a brulee pad. Uh, Not like you're going to run it through. Yeah. Say again. Not like forty grit sandpaper. No, no. You're just going to run it through something, and 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 you're gonna and you'll be amazed to see how much black crap comes off that fly line. Mm -hmm. I will generally do that two or three times before I then before I then dress the line. And I will generally dress the line once quite generously and then I'll very light tissue back along it just to take, you don't want too much of that dressing on there. Um, yep. And it's good to go. And I don't, I won't probably clean that line until after a trip's finished. Yep. Um, I know some people fastidiously clean their lines every night. Um, if I was fishing in really dirty water and I have fished in a few places where you pick up scum on the line, I would certainly clean it. But um, yeah. You will notice a difference if you've got a line you've never cleaned and dressed. You'll notice a huge difference in how it casts. So yes. it's worth doing before you go on the trip. When I come back from the trip, I do the same thing in reverse. I just um, I just clean them 
uh, and uh, then redress them. By the time you fish them again, the dressing may have sort of soaked in or evaporated or whatever happens with it. Um, yeah, there are probably products you can use that are not brand fly line dressings. Oh, I don't know, maybe you can use silicon grease or any of these things. I don't know. I use the brand's manufacturer's recommended ones because uh, I don't know what sort of chemicals those right. lines can tolerate, so I don't take a risk. And a, and a bottle of the stuff costs five five to ten bucks, and it lasts you for a couple of years. Yeah, um, and a fly line costs 150 bucks upwards these days. So Absolutely. You know, False economy, not to just to just yeah. to say five five bucks, you know, yeah. to 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 have yeah, just do what the do what the manufacturer says, and you know, um, that way you get the best experience. Once I'm not using them, I tend to put them either back on a fly line winder into a coil in a plastic bag. Yeah. Or increasingly, I just keep I just keep the spools and put them back on the spools. Mm-hmm. I know there's many many different line line storage systems available, um, but. Uh, you know, I just I just keep the boxes and the spools these days and whack them back on the spools. Uh, of course, you've always got one of those cases where you've almost wound the whole fly line back on the spool and the, the spool pops in half and the, the fly line falls off the spool and <laughs> Being immediately there. kind of <laughs> coils around itself. i got one of those sitting in a basket that I did last year that I still haven't worked up the courage to pull out and, <laughs> and separate. Um, yeah. But yeah, I tend to redo all the backing knots and all those things every time I go fishing now. So uh, every for every trip, so uh, I don't do anything fancy anymore. I, I have a pretty a pretty basic uh, setup um, and yeah. and clean the line and, and you know uh, a new new leader each time. Some lines I'm still fishing nail knots on, so yeah. uh, older lines that don't have loops, so I'll still tie a. Seven or eight turn nail knot to the front, uh, yep. or nail knot a leader on the front of the line, and I'm not scared of cutting a bit of line off that tip. I mean, the presentation aspect of a saltwater fly line is is probably the least important part of it, uh, because you know there's a bit of that level line, uh, and it, it plays lesser role in presentation in saltwater flies than it yep. does in freshwater. Uh, it's that's more of a freshwater thing, because of course the weight of the fly makes a huge difference. So. You think about throwing sure. like a number fourteen dry fly compared to throwing a, you know, a one o crab. I mean, <laughs> the tip's not exactly going to slow that thing down too much. So, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's horses for courses. But you know, when I talked about the tip, tip is presentation and and front taper is turnover. Um, most of what's happening with a big heavy saltwater fly is turnover. Yeah, you're right there. You're right there. Um, didn't really want to touch on on casting styles, but um, I did think while well, while we were talking about um, talking about leader leader uh, composition, um, in terms of how how would a beginner know when to you know change up their their leader um, composition, um, you know based on what they were seeing, you know if if they're casting for example with with a certain fly on and then noticing that. There was a bit of a shock wave that only man- manifested itself between the um, between the end of the fly line and the fly, like you know, in that area between the you know the front taper and the fly. So that include the leader and the mm. and level tip. What would you recommend doing there? Like sort of sort of changing the butt a little bit or shortening the tip or I think I think if it's collapsing, yep. it's not turning over. So you yep. know, if the fly's la- if the fly's landing behind the loop, so. If, if the lead is not turning over and the fly is sort of dumping behind the actual 
tippet itself, then it's not turning over. And, you, you know, you either need a heavier butt section or you need a um, shorter leader because uh, sometimes people will have trouble turning over a heavier fly on a long leader. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I think you can have equally bad. I'd almost rather fish with a, a bit too long leader than fish with one that's a bit too short because a bit too short um, yeah. will turn over too hard and, in fact, uh, it gets pretty spooky on, particularly if you're fishing shallow banks and stuff. And certainly a couple of times I've been fishing for barra and I thought, God, that leader's... You, you kind of don't realise because, you you know, it gets a bit smaller through the day and, you you know, yeah. you get, get a bit lazy and all of a sudden you're fishing with seven and a half foot and you're knowing that it's turning over too hard and too fast. Yeah. And what, you've lost all presentation, so... You know, when you're seeing it slap down like that, or it's it's falling hard, it's it's turning over, but it's turning over too hard yeah, or too yeah. tightly. Then you need to add something to that. But if it's not unrolling, then a different. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and casting style bit, can. Sorry, casting style. Oh, can, of course. Yeah, you can probably better moderated by your casting style and taking the effort to chop up your leader or day. You know, oh, dare the line. Oh. I agree. Yeah. You, you know, you'd either slow down or speed up your stroke. I mean, you need to be able to turn the turn the turn the leader over. And the yeah. classic example is fishing in the mangroves. And when you fish with people who are really excellent casters, their natural inclination is to punch a tight loop into the mangroves and really sock mm. it in there. And I've seen some gorgeous casts go in. They're the ones inevitably that don't come out easily unless the guide goes in and gets them. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> when they hit the timber, they stick. They uh, stick. And so, yeah. And so you can achieve the same cast with a slow push uh, and a single a single back cast and a slow push, and you'll get the same accuracy. But then, of course, when the fly lands, if you're in the timber, you can just tickle it out and do the old ticker ticker routine. Um, so, you know, you've also got to just sometimes avoid things that are going to get you into trouble casting. And I, really, that's what I notice at the most, and the fish with you know, some good casters over time who who really belt a tight loop in there, which is great against the wind for, you know, pelagics or something, but into the mangroves it's probably not going to... There will be times when you have to push a tight loop because you've got to get through a little tiny hole. I've got to call out to Warren Cooper, who did one of the best jobs of that I've ever seen in my life at the comp. He put a barrow bunny through an astronomically small hole in the mangroves and instantly hooked up the barrow he was casting to. It was very pretty to watch. Um... Yeah, but you can't always do that, and often if you get hung up, then it kind of you've got to go in and retrieve it, and it's a pain. So That's sometimes you cool slow your fishing down and yep. and open your loop a little bit just to make sure the fly is turning over uh, and it's not slapping down too hard. Because if you're fishing in two foot of water, you don't want to slap the fly down hard. You want it to land like nothing. That's right. You want, you want to yep. butter it in. Yeah, like like a butterfly with itchy feet. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's where those heavy lines won't help you people people yep. intuitively think oh you know i'm throwing big flies into the mangroves well i need one of those aggressive dumpy headed lines they're, they're in fact the worst thing you can have um you want something that you can unroll and just and just feather in there um and control all the way in so if you know you're going to overshoot it you watch a thread the guys fishing bait or your fish bait casters and thread lines of the mangroves yeah they're, they're palming the spool stop that lure overshooting and they're stopping the lure where they want it to drop you know, the longer progressive heads you can do the same thing with your casting um, yeah where you don't have that same control with the dumpy head because it's it's already running out of your hand 
Whereas it, that longer progressive head you can hang on to and that, that belly gives you the carry and that rear taper gives you that control and you can just, you know, really control the length. Uh, and then once you get that length sorted and you're mm. fishing a pretty similar length, you're really just coming backwards or forwards a couple of feet and then picking accuracy off. And um, that's where those lines help a lot. Yeah, it's pretty good advice, actually. I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, do you think there's much value in in a um, you know in someone just practicing a lot with one particular like practicing like obviously that's good advice but picking a line format and using it you just you just get good at that you know rather than chopping and changing all the time like it the process of proprioception where you learn you know the muscle memory of, of a particular cast and line like if that's if you're always adjusting you know which rod line and and yeah. you know, those adjusting those variables, are you robbing yourself of opportunities to become, you know, familiar with uh, with an outfit? I'd be robbing myself of opportunities to buy more crap. Would be the problem. <laughs> um, but ha having said Classic that, answer. I've often yeah. I've often wondered if I should just have, you know, I mean, I, typically I've got eight, nine, and ten weights because I love them all for different things. But I've often wondered whether I should just have three nine weights because. That's yeah. the one I pick up more often, and they are all different. Uh, it's no secret yeah. I fish uh, sectors in those in those line weights, and there's a huge difference between the 8, the 9, and the 10. Um, I think there's something to be said for that, and I know people who do do that, but mm. for me, the number of fishing situations I'm in, it will be, you know, wading the flats myself one day in skinny water. The next day I might be fishing for sooties. Next day I might be, you know, up at Hinchy Chase and things. There's so many variables, and I want to have the options, but... I think it probably doesn't hurt finding a, a rod taper and a line taper you like and having consistent tapers on your rods. I do get into a bit of trouble when I have all different sorts of lines. And, um, like, I picked up a sinking line up at Hinchin Book there at one stage and hadn't thrown one of those for a while. I tell you, they're not pleasant, really, full sinking lines. And um, <laughs> You know, I, did, I was sort of chatting on the boat and saying, well, you imagine if, you, imagine if you're a striped bass fisherman from Martha's Vineyard, well... You'd just be fishing these things all year long. Um, yeah. So, you know, you'd get pretty used to the one style of fishing, which would be sort of chuck and duck, uh, whereas we here tend to probably vary our style of lines. In Florida, if you're fishing the Everglades, you, you probably wouldn't be varying your line choice anywhere near as much. You know, they're just fishing full floaters for everything, uh, tarp and permit and bonefish. Yeah. Yeah, they don't even really fish. You might fish a wet tip over there to get under the weed or under the chop. But I think Australians on the whole are probably more adventurous in their fly line choice than the Americans. Variable conditions in this country that it yeah. calls for some variation in our tackle. So um, I think we see ourselves as catching. We, we actually do chase lots of different stuff, so we like to be prepared, um, you know, to have the, you know, the, a multitude of options um, that, I think it's a good point, and I think if I was starting out again, I'd probably, I'd probably pick one brand of rods, and I'd probably pick one brand of lines, and fish pretty similar tapers, just so I got used to used to them and, and used to controlling the line. And I'd probably pick a pretty long-headed taper, just so I got used to controlling the head, uh, and yeah. wasn't always trying to catch back that quick quick loading taper. Um, those quick loading lines attract so many people, and so many people say, "Oh, you know, I'll get the." you know, the, the, the big job, whatever you call it, um, and you know that it's not going to improve their casting. Uh, it might let them throw more quickly, 
it's not going to let them throw any further, and it's not going to. Th- it's certainly not going to help their accuracy or their presentation. Um, sure. Yeah, choices people make. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, a lot to be said for the, for that, I think. Oh, there's a time and place for those lines, but yeah, it's not. I don't, I don't think there's as many times and places for those lines as there are for those more general tapers and the, some of the species specific presentation tapers. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you, do you feel like some sometimes that's adding um, complications and variables to a situation? Oh, totally. I mean, I think we could probably get away with you know three or four different tapers of lines. I mean, I think there are so yeah. many now. Um, and I've been looking at it for years, and I, even I'm bamboozled when I try and pick lines. I mean, there are so many overlapping techni- technical lines. I mean, yep. I think most people have a really hard time. And I would say to you that the very best thing you can do is go into a forum. Yes, you'll get more than one response. Yes, you'll get more than one reply or opinion. That's fine. But I think forums are the places where you can kind of nut out. You can find someone who's fished that rod in that specific situation with the line you're thinking of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes social media or forums are the only places you can get some feedback because the manufacturers can't really give you that level of feedback. They'll say, well, it's a tarpon line. It should be good for this and that. Uh, Whereas someone else might say, oh, look, I got that line. It was, you know, it was great, but, you know, it wasn't too flash for this or it wasn't too flash for that. And, and, uh, you know, you should get more genuine feedback. Um, at, At any one time on the Saltwater Fly Fishing Forum, there's a number of threads happening about lines Yep. When I get together with other fly fishermen, yeah, we talk about the bling of reels and the you know gorgeous rods, but people talk about fly lines a lot um, because it's still one of the most critical parts of the outfit and it's the one that certainly mm-hmm. can make and break your day. Um, yep. Yeah, that, that, that fly line taper. So it's still a big part of what we have to nut our way through, uh, whether we're oh, absolutely. intermediate or advanced. It is... Um it's such a critical part of the equation, you know, like if you're presenting a fly to a fish, you know, the next part, most important bit after the fly is, is the, is the line, then, you know, the rod and then the reel probably in that order, you know, it, it probably deserves careful consideration and, and lots of, um, well, it, it's definitely worthy of a, of a greater understanding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people say, now oh, it's outrageous. You can pay $200 for a fly line. I said, <laughs> you've been paying more than a thousand bucks for a fly rod from, a decade at least. Um, no, you don't no. have to pay that, but the premium end. Uh, yes, two hundred dollars is a lot of money for a fly line. Um, but if you look after it and you clean it and dress it, you should get some decent use out of it. I mean, yeah. I'm terrible. I break them all the time. I fish for you know golden trevally in, in rubble, and you know for me, it's not. A, it wasn't uncommon when I'm fishing a lot. I haven't been fishing much recently, but uh, when I'm fishing a lot, it wouldn't be uncommon to go through you know, six to eight lines a year, easy, you know, yeah. just trashed, just trashed by fish in the, in the reef. Yeah. Uh, so, I, you know, that's one of the reasons I've been able to fish more lines is because I've had to because I've, I've killed a lot. People, um, but, um, listeners need to realise where I've fished with Bill where he's talking about it's a it's an awesome fishery, but, yeah, it's rough on lines and leaders and all sorts yeah. of stuff. It's, it's just hell. But, uh, yeah, continue, Bill. Yeah, so I mean, you know, I've had that I've had that advantage of trial and error. Uh, you know, I've probably spent a lot more money on fly lines than most people have. 
and yeah. and I've come to a good. I've only come to an understanding of lines because I've fished a lot of them, and I, yeah. I, you know, I'm just an I'm just an intermediate caster. So you know, I don't. I, I can cast well enough to know what I like and what I need, but yeah. I probably can never get the best out of a line. So you know, I'm, I'm sort of still finding benefits to some lines, but you know, I'm. You know, I'm not the sort of fisherman who wanders out there and needs to throw 100 feet all day long. Most people don't. So I like to, you know, the lines I like are those ones that work well within the distance I mostly fish. And yep. that might be different. That might be different if I'm waiting. I like, if I'm waiting, I like lines that float well. Yeah. I don't care how well it casts. If it doesn't float well, it's not going to get the gig. Yep. So you've also got to take in, and again, I'm not going to turn this into a brand specific thing, but some brands float better than others. Some brands last better. Some brands are more tropical. Uh, you know, more robust in a tropical environment in terms of the heat than others, uh, even though they're all rated a tropical line. Some actually seem to, you know, stay um, stiff enough to cast well in the heat better than some others. So you only work that stuff out through trial and error or getting on the forums and asking people. I'll tell you straight up. Uh, they may not always be right, but that's just the nature of social media. But uh, unfortunately, we keep coming back to that same point. Everything in fly fishing is uh, is a question of trial and error. <laughs> and that's that's the fun bit, literally, isn't it? You know, people want to get an absolute answer on things. Don't do fly fishing. It's about a journey, you know. <laughs> no, forget about forget about absolutes. Yeah. I think we should forget about absolutes in life altogether. Just about every time I have a conversation with someone who's hell bent on some absolute, I think, well, you're in for a hard time because life just does not present you with absolutes. Life presents you with a range of ups and downs and sideways movements and you've got to adapt and um so yeah but that's really books. deep bill do you have oh, a sorry i didn't mean to be deep uh, this is the intermediate line however so <laughs> we should be we should be dredging the depths of human emotion surely <laughs> even talking about fly lines uh, but yeah there's so many uh, there's so many options for people and and you know get together with your mates share a few lines over a few rods don't worry if it's a weight up or a weight down or two weights up or two weights down yeah Just so people can say, "Wow, wow, I really feel this load." Sometimes the exaggeration of fly fishing technique helps people learn more quickly how things work. So mm -hmm. don't be afraid to to accelerate your own learning by of how things work by changing things around. And yeah, that that's the beauty of of having friends with gear and join a club is a good way to fish mm -hmm. a few different lines or or um. You know, next time you buy a line, look on the forums and maybe there's a, or on Facebook, and maybe there's a, you know, a 40 buck job that you can get that you don't really care about, um, that you can go yep. and park cast or, uh, you know, there's lots of options there. Lots Trying of a number of different lines. Oh, lots yeah, of ways lots to of ways get to connected. Eh? Yeah. Absolutely. It's all yeah. about getting connected, that's for sure. <laughs> hey, um, glad we snuck that in. <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are two random points. Um, sure. I I did want to bring up they're unrelated, so it's going to seem disjointed. Um, we spoke about to, uh, casting, um, you know, grabbing your mate's line, um, casting. Um, don't cast, uh, don't strip your line onto dirt, like if, if you're no. in a park <laughs> or, or the no. road, because I can tell you that it picks up a lot of, a lot of Just stuff. Take a mat, um, take yeah. a mat or something. And it, it, it wrecks, it'll wreck your rod, like uh, the, the line or, 
you know, uh, particularly if it's just been dressed, or might might pick up some dirt, some some gravel, and um, even just fine grit will will act like a um, an abrasive and very quickly, um, you know, ruin the coating on your guides. Uh, yeah, trash. I, I remember some guy who may or may not be a petroleum engineer from South Africa doing something like to one of my rods somewhere in. Uh, <laughs> On a small, on a small Pacific atoll. But anyway, that's that's the bitumen down there. Don't cast onto that. Oh, he's, he was famous for taking liberties with other people's gear. But yeah, yeah. but anyway, um, <laughs> love him. Hey, um, and the other major point I wanted to bring it. We we'd sort of agreed in our pre-chat to talk about it. We haven't touched on it. Yeah. Uh, cold water lines, yeah. uh, tropical lines, temperate lines. Yeah. There's so many opinions on this. Uh, they're like the proverbials. Everyone's got one. Yeah. Look, I think for the most part, if you're living anywhere in New South Wales or lower, um, a temperate line is maybe your best choice, but tropical lines will work. It depends yeah. on how cold it gets. I mean, there aren't many places in Australia where you need a cold water line. That's my first observation. I yep. think if you're fishing down around Tassie and those places, possibly some areas in uh, Victoria and South Australia in winter, mm-hmm. uh, a cold water line is probably not a bad idea. Uh, yep. Certainly, I've fished a cold water line uh, in in Sydney, and it, it wasn't necessary. I'm going to hear people like Justin Duggan and others who you've had on the podcast say they fish tropical lines all year round. Um, yep. I think it's something to not get overwrought about. Uh, yep. I think if you're fishing up north... I, I, now, someone else will contradict me on this and everyone's got a different opinion, but I would be much more inclined to buy a tropical line to fish the tropics than I would be to buy a cold water or a temperate line to fish Brisbane or Sydney. Yep. I think you're much more likely to get away with fishing a tropical line on most of the eastern seaboard, but I wouldn't bring a cold water line north. It'd be dreadful. Mm. Uh, and even some t- in the height of summer in a place like Townsville or Cairns, uh, even a temperate line can be a bit limp, and once that line gets limp, it loses it loses the ability to carry the fly. So you lose the benefit of the fly line's action uh, to a, a good degree. That's yeah. principally that's principally floating lines. Um, intermediate lines tend to be a little bit wirier by their nature, uh, and sure. uh, we won't get into cores and everything like that. But obviously, the core of the fly line makes a difference too. Uh, but you know, look for a line that's rated for the temperature you want to fish it in. Uh, mm-hmm. Most general saltwater tapers are automatically temperate lines. Yep. If it's a tropical line, it'll almost almost always say tropical. Uh, and most fly line manufacturers, you can go to their websites and you can look at lines by temperature. But yep. I, yeah, I probably wouldn't race out and buy a cold water line um, unless you were fishing somewhere that was actually bloody cold. Uh, the only time I've ever fished a cold water line and I needed it was I fished New York in winter uh, for yep. striped bass and I fished a nine-weight cold water striper and I needed it. Uh, and, you know, anything else would have been unmanageable. I don't know how cold it was, but let's just say it was uh, later in that week it snowed. So wow, it, it was cold. Uh, I had, you know, a couple of layers. It was cold, you know, blue face, blue ears. Uh, that's the only other time I felt I needed it. Uh, so... But definitely, if you're fishing the tropics in summer, have a full-rated tropical line. Uh, again, oils ain't oils. Some tropical lines are not as stiff as others. Uh, and again, this is the sort of information you get on forums. But yeah, I think 
don't be too worried about it. Um, if you're fishing really anywhere sort of Sydney north, you can probably fish either a temperate or a tropical, unless you're in the heat of summer uh, and the north and you probably want to, you know, I wouldn't try and take a temperate line up to Darwin and fish, you know, in the billabong. For... One of the things people don't realise is you fish out of a boat, that boat deck is super hot. Super and, hot. And that will turn a temperate line into limp spaghetti pretty quickly. So yeah. it's not just about the ambient air temperature, it's also about what that line's lying on. So if you're fishing a, a boat somewhere in the tropics, well, you probably need a, a tropical line just to cope with the heat of that's radiating off the deck. Uh, that's, yeah. That kind of seems to work pretty well. A good idea when you have faced that scenario, splash some water on the deck regularly. Of course, yeah, of yeah. course. Or you can use a line management device, yep. like a you know one of those sort of uh, bins or yeah, yep. any of those things. I haven't used them that much. I do sometimes. I think if you're fishing in a bit of a hectic scenario, like you know lots of tuna or something like that, they can be helpful just to keep your line away from. Yep. Gnarly. And some boats need them because they've got more stuff to hang your line up on. But most modern skiffs don't have a lot to hang your line up on in those. Those lines don't, don't, those management devices don't help a huge amount. I don't use stripping baskets myself, but I understand why some people do. They, they can be, yeah, they can be useful. Yeah. Hey, Bill, have you got any tips on uh, not tangling a line? Oh, do you mean in a boat or waiting? Uh, well, uh, let's do, let's do waiting first and then boat. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a free flying kind of guy. I like to just let it out behind me, and yep. uh, I think when it's floating high, generally it's pretty good. I do pick it up and move it a bit, and mm -hmm. uh, I try not to. I do much the same thing on a boat as when I'm waiting. I am managing the line all the time. Sure, so yeah. I'm not leaving it to chance that it'll be okay. I'm moving it. So if I'm on a boat, I am checking where it is, and I'm not you know like everybody else, perfect, but. I will be making sure that line is stripped down between the, you know, the into the well. Uh, I'm trying not to stand on it. Inevitably, you do a bit, but obviously, the more you do that, the the more chance you'll foul the line. Also, I think actively managing line. If you're a trout yeah. fisherman and you fish flowing rivers, you know all about this. <laughs> you can't when you're mm. fishing upstream. You're constantly managing line. And I me, the first time I did that, it almost drove me crazy. I thought, oh, geez, I've never had to do this before. Um, Yep. So it seems funny to say actively manage a line when, in fact, that's probably more passive than most trout fishermen are used to. Uh, but, of course, they're, they're in a different scenario. So I think just keeping an eye on where it's going, uh, mm -hmm. making sure making sure it's not stuck on something, making sure it's clear, making sure it's wrapped around something. And um, obviously you don't want to be wrapped around a, a, an outboard or a prop or, or something like that but yeah just just keeping an eye on it and if it does get a bit dry and grubby just give it a bit of a wet down as you say bit of a wet down yeah yeah um, that works some other successful habits that that i've developed over the years um you know don't in general don't have a lot of uncast line like if 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 you're yeah. only casting 60 foot for whatever reason don't have don't have 70 or 80 stripped off because that that extra, you know, 10 to 20 foot just sitting around tangling. You know, as, as you actually cast, you go through your cycles of tilting the rod and backwards and forwards or whatever, you're actually you're adding small amounts of twist each time. So. Yeah, you're just adding twist all the time. And that, that twist yeah. is, is um, you've got to kind of, to get rid of that, you've got to kind of strip it in quite hard, sort of yeah. pinch strip it. Uh, yeah. You know, people try all sorts of stuff, tie it behind a boat and stuff, but actually... 
imagine when you straighten something out, you just put a bit of pressure on it and squeeze its length. It's a bit like squeezing a tube of toothpaste, really. But you just got to sort of pinch strip that, strip a bit when you want to get rid of it, strip a bit more line out, cast it all out, and then sort of really strip it in, pinched hard, and you'll generally straighten that twist. But yeah, you don't want to, you don't want more line than um, than you need. I heard a funny story on the weekend with someone uh, talking about telling clients they've got too much line out, which we've all done from time to time, and clients who who, who just wind in the back part of the line. Uh, they don't realise they've got too much casting line out. Um, yep. Look, we all think we're going to cast further than we need to, but I guess keeping an eye on how much you've got rolling around is, is one of those things. That's a great tip, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's a, probably a number one one. Um, the other one I see on the boat a lot of a lot of times, particularly when I'm tuna fishing, you have one guy in a bow, you have one guy driving. The guy in the bow sometimes, uh, they might do it out of nervousness or it's a bad habit anyway, is it? I'll see them doing almost like shadow casting, like they're moving yeah. the, the rod backwards and forwards. Um, I don't like that for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, from a line management issue, each each rod cycle probably adds a little bit of twist. The other thing, um, um, that that rod flat, you know, going backwards and forwards a little bit and piss the birds off, and I need the birds. Um, so, but yeah, that's that's a little bad habit I see pretty regularly. People doing that, people standing on lines—that's bad news. I used to do that a bit myself, and in fact, it was Amos Mapperson who used to bloody give me a kind of virtual slap upside the head. He'd say, "What are you doing?" And and all I was doing was just kind of roll casting to get ready for it. And I would only ever do it when I when we're on a fish. Um, yeah. And when you do that from a waiting position and just kind of move your line a bit, it's probably softer and not going to spook but when you're up higher there's more chance that that line's going to get caught on something and uh, i think just being aware of where your line is before you cast is the most important thing look down at your feet make sure you're not standing on it make sure it's cleared away if you've got a well you can put it in kick it in the well uh, kind of pull enough line out of the tip to to be able to start your cast and but but don't start casting until you're ready because yeah. inevitably you know the pressure takes over and you wind up with a bit of line wrapped around your shoulder or <laughs> yep. People get themselves in all sorts of horrible oh, knots because yeah. they've they've rushed their cast and and you know in the yeah. you know, everyone wants to catch a fish so coop, uh, and, and coop gets fly lines of what does he get caught on one of his tusks you know <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. you know what fly lines are like you put three fly rods together in a corner and they will be tangled within two Magnetic. seconds yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. they yeah. they breed with each other yeah uh, and you know like and, and you know so. They just stick to everything. Then uh, they just—I think—they just sort of blow onto things, and so you've got to keep an eye on the things, make sure they're not sort of sticking to everything. But uh, another look, a, a dressed line will, will definitely be a lot better than an under a sticky line will stick to everything. Of course, yeah. That that brings me to another point too. If if you see a line, you know, sort of potentially caught on something like a bollard on a boat or just something that might might grab it. Don't flick it off. Like don't, don't you know? Don't be lazy. Just reach down and actually you know, remove it because um, that quite often that, you know, jerking on it will um, will damage the line um, or, or even, you know, cause a cause it to twist even more. So, yeah, just there are no oh. shortcuts. you just got to be diligent and patient. Yeah. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. there's so many things you can do to um, – I guess the only one thing we haven't mentioned is uh, the, the other thing that I have come to think of more – um, carefully about in the last couple of years is whether there's a difference between really brightly coloured lines and those that are more 
you know, I guess more discreetly coloured. And I think there's definitely something in that. I think if you're fishing somewhere with a chance of, you know, line flare and colour, yep. a more muted colour is probably better. Um, but, but I guess none of us really have a good enough idea of what fish see. And I think they're more more prone to seeing movement, movement uh, yeah. than anything. Uh, but certainly when I'm fishing drains for barra or those, uh, you know, where you you sometimes overshoot a fish that you haven't seen, uh, mm. those clear tip lines or clear floaters or pale floaters can be better because you can kind of overcast things and not uh, and not spook what you didn't see. And uh, that that's... I know, sometimes guides hate them, and I know that in, on you know people talking about our oh, CI guides hate those lines because they can't see where the fly is because they really sure. looking. They know how far the fly is from the rod from the fly line tip, but as yep. an angler, uh, those lines can can give you a bit more um, a bit more stealth, and they can allow you to fish a slightly shorter leader than you might otherwise fish, uh, just because you've got however many feet of stealth. Uh, and I think there's a bunch of, I guess, intermediate tip lines are similar because most of them are either clear or opaque. So yep. not only are you getting the Swiss Army knife effect of it getting down uh, and anchoring flies and anchoring and current lines, but you're also getting a bit of stealth out of those tips as well. So um, I think that's another vote for the intermediate tip line, certainly up here. Uh, and I, I know a lot of people are talking, in fact, you've told me that, you know, fishing on tuna schools, you know, you've moved away from the full intermediates and, in fact, that, that intertip is, is enough some days. So. Oh, it is because um, one of the great advantages for me is if that, if that school moves or we, we're basically in a position where you have to rapidly reposition yeah. the fly, you just strip strip it too fast strips flies on the surface ready to be back cast whereas yeah. you know if it's an intermediate um you know it, it you know, it's quite often you got to strip a whole lot more in most, most people cannot pick up 20 foot of intermediate line of the water and recast it i can tell you now yeah um it, it's you've got to get you know if it's a, if you've got 40 foot of intermediate line out you've in the very least got to get the running line up onto the rod you've got to get the head inside the guides before the line can technically even be picked up just because that hinge point. Uh, and chances are you're going to get at least half the head in. So that, that could be well, – that can be enough time for the fish to have sounded or to have spooked or something. So just oh, from yeah. that perspective. I think where you get lots of long, lazy shots at fish, uh, full and immediate, it's useful. And, of yep. course, it's heavily stealthy because it's all clear. Um, but, yeah. look, I mean, you know, in our, our tuna scenario, fishing for goldies and permit out of a boat, not too many of us fish full intermediates anymore. We generally have one there, but we're mostly fishing wet tips because that's enough to get you down. You're fishing a bloody heavy fly anyway, so it's not like the fly's not going to sink. Um, mm. It's just more about, um, yeah, easy repositioning. As you say, you, you get that intermediate tip line up pretty quick and recast, whereas it was a full inter, you'd still be stripping it in. Sure, sure. Hey, Bill, um, what, uh, what fly fishing trips you got coming up? In the near future, so I'm headed up north uh, with uh, Daz, uh, who's the uh, the owner and administrator of Saltwater Flies oh, yeah, Darren Brack Forum. Yeah. Darren Brack has yeah. been on the show, uh, and Warren Cooper, uh, yeah. and maybe someone else, um, but unfortunately, uh, our other partner can't come because of COVID lockdowns and things like that, which has been a tragedy. Um, but I won't yeah. call it out just because you know he's yeah. you know, he's got a good right to be upset about that it's disappointing mm. 
uh, and we'll miss him. Uh, but we headed up to fish four or five days with Dave. Uh, he's in his last year of guiding, Hinchy. Yep. Uh, we, we were having a last hurrah with Dave to chase some big permit on the flats at Hinchinbrook. Uh, that's our yep. main target, you know, in between times. We'll probably catch a few, scratch around and catch a few barra. And, um, yeah, I'm seeing some big, seen some big barra up the last few years. So, yeah, last year I got one, I think, 75 on fly. So, that's a good barra. I'd be very happy with another one of those. But, yeah. of course, always, always the hunger for permit, uh, never <laughs> relenting. Uh, it's, like a, it's like a terrible sickness. Uh, drives you to do silly things and uh, drives you to you know, to to drink and uh, lack of reason sometimes. <laughs> Is that your excuse for like and rum? <laughs> <laughs> well, permit and rum go well hand in hand. They both they both induce an absence of reason and a um, and a, a loss of sensibility. So <laughs> definitely, uh, if you do both at the same time, then at least you kind of can can commiserate one with the other. Uh, yep, that's what we're doing. We'll uh, head up there and have a have a uh, have some permit up on those flats, uh, yep. and hopefully, hopefully, knock one of those over. We get a couple on the trip. It's usually a good trip, so yeah, it, looking forward it, to that. It wouldn't be a fly line special if I didn't ask you what uh, what fly lines you'd be using on those permit, mate. What what sort of style would you be using? Definitely intermediate tip. So yep. generally, I'll have a ten weight with an intermediate tip, and a yep. nine weight with an intermediate tip. And yep. we might have a 10 weight with a full intermediate on it. And then for everything else, a full floater. So right. for literally everything else, we'd fish in the mangroves, uh, full floating line and, and the flats uh, intermediate tip. There are some, I, I should say, I take two intermediate tips with me now. I take one that's around that 10 foot and I take one that's around that 15 foot. Sure. So if we're fishing on the deeper flats, I can fish a, a, lo a longer intermediate tip. I don't know if it makes much difference. You know, it's a peace of mind thing. I know I can get deep, a little bit deeper if I need to, but cool. uh, again, we're fishing heavy flies. The flies we're fishing are sort of, you know, three and a half to five grams. So, again, there's not a problem with the fly sinking. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, all inter intermediate tips have become, I think, uh, really critical lines for, uh, for that sort of fishing. And you, funnily enough, you just don't see them on the shelves in the US at all. Yeah, it's weird that. Uh, and you come here and this is, probably one of the for tropical fishing they're probably one of the most widely bought lines around for good reason yeah they were don't know if it's whether we're crazy or the yanks just don't get it i think the yanks <laughs> just don't get it uh, that's that's my guess uh, yeah i don't have an explanation for that one it just seems like a a, a very funny you know it's a bit like oh you wouldn't buy an american boat because they're no good for australian conditions well yeah. i'm sure there's plenty of examples <laughs> of where wet tips work perfectly well as I said, the only time I've ever fished a wet tip at a guy's insistence in Florida was when there were tarpon around and there was a lot of matte weed on the surface and we had to get yes. the flies down below that weed uh, for the tarpon to see them. And uh, that was a kind of a wet tip. Otherwise, it's full floater all the way or you go to a slime line, which is a, you know, an intermediate. Uh, but, of yeah. course, that's, no, one, no one really wants to fish a slime line on tarpon because it means <laughs> you're fishing to... It means you're fishing to fish that you can't see and you're fishing to rollers and yeah, that takes some of the fun out of it, I guess, until you hook one and it's the same battle. But uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah, wet, wet tip, wet tip's our name of the game. And I think pretty much everyone in our boat uh, and our crew and most of the people we know fish wet tips now. Uh, and because they're the they don't think of them as a compromise because they're not a compromise, 
they're actually a good option. Uh, they're not a compromise between a floater or an intermediate. They're actually the best of both worlds. So, you know, be a glass half full sort of person because that's what I think they represent. Yeah, right. That's a fascinating way of listening to. Oh, did you hear that? I just got a message here. Um, oh, it's Frank. <laughs> I think. Yeah, it's Frank. Oh, there you go. Yeah. What's he have to say? They let him out, have they? Yeah, he yeah he's made bail. He's um he's pleaded yeah. not guilty to excess verbosity. That's the number one charge. <laughs> yeah, and for bostibation in public, he's yeah. um, he's going to fight both of them. He says, "Well, good relations, yeah. Chris. Good luck with that, yeah. mate." Failing failing to adequately failing to adequately to describe a fly line of these <laughs> principal charges, I guess. <laughs> oh well, he's he's going to need a good lawyer. <laughs> In the words yeah. of the cruel sea, yeah, exactly. Better get a lawyer, son. Better get yeah. a real good one. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear he's out. He uh, he probably wouldn't last too long in there. He's too pretty for prison. Ah, <laughs> uh, too many people know know more about fly lines, and you know, you know just be <laughs> cruel to him. I guess you got to yeah. come out sometime. <laughs> what did he say for himself anyway? The text message. No, that's it. He's he, oh, okay. yeah, it's a really really short. I think he's saving his um, safe and home his, with a bowl yeah, suit. Yeah, he's uh, he's not going to be ver- verbose twice. I think he's just kept it short and sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like his casting stroke. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> short and sweet. <laughs> yeah. All right, mate. Hey, that's uh, it's well over two hours now, Bill. Yeah, sorry. Feel free to cut some of it out. <laughs> no, it's a lot of talk there. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know what to. And it, it's it's all. Uh, I found it all very useful, mate. Um, and um, thank you very much for your time. Oh, and, it's my pleasure. Yeah, and I look forward to spending um, some time fishing with you again in the near future. It's been too long. I hope so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it myself. It'd be great. Yeah, yeah. love yeah. love to get out. Love to get out down your way and. Um, Oh, catch a tiger! Never caught a tiger. That's one of my lifelong ambitions. Um, so pretty special. Yep. Yeah, get the get the big key freshwater species, which I reckon jungle perch, Saratoga, and Murray cod. I reckon yep. that that's a that's a trifecta I've got to catch. I've, I've only got the jungle perch, so I need to get some southern species. Oh, that's excellent, mate. Well, well, mm. if you're ever down here, we'll we'll make that happen. <laughs> Never actually caught a bass either, for that matter. But oh, for some reason, I put them I put them in the same group <laughs> as brim. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. <laughs> uh, thanks yeah. for having me again, and I uh, hopefully we shed a little bit of light on on fly lines, and I at least had a conversation about some stuff that people can give them some food for thought. That's the main thing. Yeah, yeah. No, that's all. All this podcast ever wants to do is help people level up and, and get yeah, connected. Yeah. yeah. All right, Bill. Thanks. All right, time. mate. Good talking. Bye.
Shame!